Okay, Jesse, I'm still steaming about last week's Costco hypocrisy fest. What are we talking about this week? A man slaughters his entire family, wife, mother, and three children in their New Jersey mansion and gets away with it for 18 years. It would take a nosy neighbor, a tireless homicide detective, and a hit television show to eventually bring him to justice. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, the podcast where true crime meets human interest and where the people who are supposed to love you the most can sometimes turn in the most horrible ways imaginable. <laughs> you can. <laughs> that was a lot. You can find I love. I really leaned into that one. <laughs> You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app and help new people discover the show. So, Jesse, I am not with you, unfortunately. No, very, very sadly, and like all of you guys out there who I'm sure are going through the same thing, Andy's travel plans came to a halt because of (laughs) stupid COVID-19. So this is our first Thanksgiving since 2013 that we haven't spent together. It's very sad. It's very sad. So we are very proud to be doing the responsible thing and... (laughs) Both of us staying in our respective homes. Trying to find the sliver of positivity or responsibility. And this is literally the only thing that's preventing me from hysterically crying all the time. Yes, exactly. (laughs) We are just focusing on doing the right thing and keeping people safe that we love and keeping ourselves safe. And we hope you guys are doing the same thing. But we commiserate with you because this year, Frickin' blows. Yes. I, I feel like they should be calling it COVID-2020 by now. Like, I know it started in 2019, <laughs> but I, like, don't – I don't, like, have the same hatred for 2019 as I do for 2020. So I feel like – No. This, this really sucks. So Andy and I are very sad. We also – that was going to be today was going to be the first episode we ever did together in studio. So I don't think we'll be seeing each other in person for a very long time but luckily we have these two hours a week that we get to spend together virtually but we also you know wasn't just going to be recording and merch meetings we also were very much looking forward to telling you something in person together but alas since we can't I think Andy should tell you some good news I mean we we've been waiting how long so long (laughs) Since so long, since June, since before mm-hmm. we started the podcast, to tell you guys that I am actually pregnant. Yay! And I'm actually <laughs> pregnant. We're both pregnant. <laughs> and it was going to be so much fun. And we were going to take a cute photo for the gram together. Yes. Yeah, so now we are going to post 
a photoshopped picture of the <laughs> two of us together with our bellies. We are so close that Andy and I got pregnant one week apart from each other. Andy is due at the end of February and I am due the first week of March. So I'm a copycat is what's is what I'm saying here. <laughs> um, yeah. So we're going to just be like V 2020 and Photoshop a photo together. I mean, it's, it's real bad. It's right real now. bad. And now that you guys know also that we're both pregnant, you know, we have to be extra special safe. So yeah. Unfortunately, it did not work out for us. And also, I want you guys to know that I am already planning our maternity leave. So we will have fresh episodes every week, no matter what, for you guys to listen to, even as we have sleepless nights and uh, sore nipples and all the... (laughs) All the fun think, stuff that comes with. I think it's gonna be like really, really fun for our listeners to like, especially all of you moms and dads out there, to start trying to tell if and when we're recording post baby. <laughs> yeah, <Like> exactly. <laughs> yeah, we have a certain amount of episodes that I am pre-writing, and we will pre-record. So we will not miss a beat. You will not miss any content. But then you you'll have to listen in our voices to figure out <laughs> something was recorded pre-baby or post-baby. It's going to be quite funny. Yes. And we'll definitely <laughs> announce the little buggers as they make their way into the world. I am expecting a little boy and Andy is not finding out until she gives birth. So we have a big love murder unsolved mystery <laughs> for the next couple months. <laughs> Uh, And I'm also a first-time mother, so I'm taking any and all advice out there. Yes, feel free to DM us. And there's a – this is, Andy, probably the only appropriate time for our children to listen to the podcast is while they're inside of us. Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So that is our good news, guys. And because this is our Thanksgiving episode, we did the little thanks killing, which I hope you guys liked. But because this one will come out the day before Thanksgiving, and because we just announced that we were both in the family way, I thought that it was the perfect time for our first family annihilator. I mean, which it kind of is, kind of, right? It kind of is, right? When you're getting like together with weird- your family fucked up sadistic way. (laughs) Yes, in a very sadistic way. As you're gathering with your families, I'd like to tell you the story of a man who killed his entire family. Hopefully people are, are, you know, also doing the responsible thing and canceling and so they can listen to this on the year that they are not spending with their family. But yes, exactly. So I hope that this this will bring you some modicum of comfort to know that, you know, our plans were effed up to And we're all in this together, even if we're strangers telling you murder stories on a podcast. We're we're here. We're in it with you. All right. That being said, let's talk about some devastating family murder. On Sunday night, May 21st, 1989, the hit television show America's Most Wanted broadcast on Fox and reached an estimated 22 million viewers, all wrapped in hoping to help solve a crime. John Walsh, the host, who true crime buffs will recognize not only because of his deep voice and sad eyes, but also because of his own personal tragedy, would introduce this segment as follows. 
Now, tonight's first case, the oldest we've ever pursued on America's Most Wanted. The suspect, John List, is accused of murdering his family 17 years ago. Tonight, let's try to close the books on the most infamous murder case in the history of New Jersey. One of those 22 million viewers happened to be Wanda Flannery, a 60-year-old tabloid enthusiast from Colorado. Her suspicions about her former neighbor, Bob Clark, who had recently moved to Virginia, had been aroused two full years earlier when she saw John List featured in the Weekly World News. Lightning hardly strikes twice, so Wanda knew this time it was her duty to report him. Jotting down the phone number that flashed on her screen with shaking hands and new resolve, Wanda provided her son-in-law with the phone number, the Clark's address in Virginia, and he made the call. Thanks to her tip, the infamous John List, a.k.a. Bob Clark, would be apprehended merely nine days later. It would take an unbelievable combination of a busybody neighbor, television entertainment, a New Jersey police detective, and several FBI agents to close in on the man who had murdered his elderly mother, wife, and three children on one gruesome early winter day in 1971, and then evaded capture for a jaw-dropping nearly 18 years. Insane. This is the story of the Mac Daddy of Family Annihilators, John Mother Effin List. Dude, 18 Crazy. years. That's how long we're going to be locked with these little rugrats. <laughs> I know. I wrote later, like I was making notes, and I wrote, that's the, the entirety of a human. That goes from infancy to adulthood. To buy. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. insane. 18 years. Yeah, so also thank you to Allie A. This is a listener-recommended episode, and this case is just bananas bonkers. So thanks, Allie. Allie is a great writer and true crime fanatic in her own right, and we love her here. And the book that I am using, I highly recommend. It's called Death Sentence by Joe Sharkey. He's a phenomenal writer, and I will most certainly – Uh, be using his work for another case because this book read like poetry. I listened to the Audible and I could not get enough. I listened like in my car, washing dishes, doing laundry whenever I could because I could not get enough of it. Let's get right into it and start talking about this dirt bag, shall we? Mm -hmm. So John List was born on September 17th, 1925 in Bay City, Michigan to John Frederick and Alma List. John Sr. was 64 years old, 26 years older than his second wife, Alma. When he had had the baby? 64 when he had John. Yep. Holy shit. And you said how much older than Alma? 26 years. I like that name. I think that's cute. Alma's a nice name. Yeah. She sounded like a really nice lady too, so. So Alma had until recently before John's birth, been his first wife's cancer nurse huh so yeah so that's how they met she was his first wife's cancer nurse until his first wife died I can see that that's like kind of like CPS a little bit you know like Mm -hmm. the close proximity syndrome where like yep you're someone who you're like if he was actually with his wife every day or like helping her at the hospital and then this woman's helping her like it's kind of hard not to 
it can go one of two ways. It can either be nefarious, like yeah, <laughs> like she like wormed her way in there and it's suspicious. But Alma seems really nice, so I'm gonna give her the benefit of the doubt and see. It's more like they were bonded over going through a traumatic experience together and. Yeah. On average, I don't think cancer nurses are terrible people. So uh, <laughs> I would, I would yeah. say all nurses are God yeah, heroes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you for all of your efforts. Speaking of, we're bitching about our holiday plans right now. Well, you guys are on the front line. So if you are a medical professional or even somebody who just works in a grocery store or anyone who is on the front lines, we applaud you and we thank you. And it's because of you, we are healthy enough to bitch about our Thanksgiving plans. Yep. And lucky <laughs> enough to be able to make choices to keep us safe too. Exactly. Okay. So Alma and John Frederick got together over his dead wife and then they had their one and only son, John, when they were 64 and whatever 64 minus 26 is. It's interesting that he didn't have a kid with his first wife. Not that I know of. I did not see any evidence of that. So that's really interesting. Yep. So John Jr. was raised in a strict Lutheran family and was described as quiet, neat, and likable as a child. However, in high school, he went mostly unnoticed by his classmates, who vaguely recalled him as a tall, bookish, deeply religious boy who always dressed sharply but never seemed to have any friends. Intensely patriotic, John enlisted soon after graduation in 1943 and reported to basic training at Fort Benning in Georgia. His father passed away in 1944, and in February of 1945, John was finally shipped overseas to Europe, where Allied forces were pressing their final assaults from both the East and West into Germany, while German forces held out in the last-ditch famous Battle of the Bulge. Eventually, Germany surrendered, of course, as we all know now, and the war was ended by late April 1945. So he really wasn't there for very long. So John would end up spending another year bouncing around the Pacific, doing post-war busy work like digging drainage ditches in the Philippines, and eventually returning home to Michigan and his widowed mother, Alma. All in all, he was overseas for about 11 months, the vast majority of which he spent in transit or waiting to be transferred. And this is only significant because much, much, much later after his atrocious crimes and years in hiding, he would try to blame his murderous actions on PTSD. But he saw very little, if any, combat. And Joe Sharkey, the author of Death Sentence, politely calls bullshit on the PTSD. However, he did bring home a souvenir. It was an Austrian Steyr pistol purchased in 1944 and used to qualify for an army sharpshooter's badge in Europe. He wouldn't fire the weapon again for 27 years. And when he did, the people he would use it to dispatch would be the farthest thing one could consider from an enemy. Hmm. A little foreshadowing there. Like I haven't mentioned that he murdered his family 18 times already. Just dropping it in. <laughs> yeah, just dropping it in. So John did end up taking advantage of the GI Bill, which, of course, helps servicemen and veterans uh, financially achieve college educations and graduated from the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor in 1950 with a bachelor's in business administration 
And he also eventually achieved his MBA from an accelerated program of the same school. So he did he did well for himself. Is that where his mama is in um, Michigan yep. as well? Okay. Exactly. I don't – so she was not in Ann Arbor, but she was in Michigan. So they, they were still pretty local. Yeah. By fall of 1951, his Army Reserve unit had been called up for the Korean War and John was stationed in Richmond, Virginia. It was there on a night out with some fellow officers at a bowling alley in nearby Newport News that John would meet a beautiful young widow named Helen Taylor. Helen's sister Jean had insisted on the outing to cheer up Helen as she had just buried her husband the day before. Ooh, I don't know about that. Well, so he had actually died six months earlier, but they had just sent the body back. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> it's like, no, you Still just buried your husband last night, but let's go hit the bowling alley. Let's get let's you a strike. soda. Woo-hoo. I'd be like, fuck you, bitch. Leave me yeah. alone. That's the last thing I want to do. I just, if anything ever happens to Nathaniel, I want you to fly here and immediately just serve vodka to my face. That's it. That's all I want you to do. I definitely don't want you to take me bowling. Yeah. No, bowling is not on the heartbreak, Jesse. List. <laughs> no, not for heartbreak like, day. I don't know. I mean, I guess if you're like an avid bowler, maybe it like would cheer you up, but yeah, yeah, not on my list. Um, yes, so he had actually passed away six months earlier. Okay. And he had left behind 26 year old widow Helen and their nine year old daughter Brenda. So, yes, if you'll do the math on that, you'll realize that Helen had only been about 16 when she had dropped out of high school to marry and give birth. Helen was still grieving and completely unsure what to do with her life without a husband. And it seems like she settled for, you know, John, who seemed stable and smart. And he was an officer just like her husband had been. Could you imagine being 26 with a kid and a passed away husband and trying to figure out what to do? I didn't know what to do at 26 with, like, myself. I know. Well, especially also because she had gotten married. I think she started dating her husband at, like, 15, was married at 16, had the baby at 16. Jesus. So she had never – she had gone from her parents' house to her husband's home and kind of followed him on his career – I mean, I, I'm sure she had no idea what to do with herself. So, so scary. This guy came along. He seemed really polite. He seemed smart. Um, you know, I'm sure that she was just grasping at straws. So they ended up getting married less than two months after they met on December 1st, 1951. So her husband died in April and she was already married again by December. That wow. is That is a serious rebound. Yeah, that's a lot. But I mean, like, kind of, it's the 50s. Like, what? You know what I mean? It's It's honestly, it just makes sense. It's just like we were talking about with um, John List's parents. Like, that guy did not know what to do with himself without a wife. Yeah. And then he's like, where's the next woman? Oh, she's right there. (laughs) You know, literally right there. Can I marry you? You know, that's almost what happened generationally in this situation as well, you know? Yeah. Also, Helen's life was really, really, really tragic. I'm about to tell you a little bit about it, and girlfriend could not catch a break, I'm, I have to tell you. So first of all, there's evidence she was sexually and physically abused as a child, which would make sense how a 15-year-old girl would end up with a 23-year-old soldier from a nearby army base. Like, if she's 
trying to escape something bad that's happening at home. I'm sure that – Wait, her the, ex-husband was 23? Yeah, when they got together, even though she was only 15. Oh, okay. You said 26 and 23, and I thought that they – he was like, No, she oh. was she was. I thought he was like 10 or 11 when he got her knocked up, and I was no, like, oh, no. No. No, when she was like 15 or 16. I'm not clear exactly okay. when they met. Um, So she was either 15 or 16. Okay. And she met a 23-year-old. Totally, so he was, totally he was that much older than her. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. It's like there's a lot of like <laughs> ages and numbers getting thrown out quickly here. So and, – and she really loved him. So, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that he seemed like a decent guy even though he was a 23-year-old marrying a child. <laughs> it was a different time back then. It's yeah. pre-World War II. So I think she was definitely trying to escape whatever was going on at home because her sister said really bad things happened to her. She married this guy, Marvin Taylor, and it did seem to be a generally happy marriage, minus a few extremely sad things that happened um, to Helen and to the couple during this period, which was, one, while giving birth to Brenda in 1942, the doctor accidentally splashed ether in Helen's right eye, which permanently damaged the cornea and caused her to have a wall-eyed look and severely limited peripheral vision for the rest of her life. Call it wall. Wall. It just is like the opposite of cross-eyed. Like one eye would wander out rather than in. And it just was uncontrollable. That happened during birth? Yes. So she's a teenager because she was 16 when she gave birth. So she's a teenager giving birth (laughs) – for the first time and her doctor permanently disfigures her so imagine that insane you're already getting disfigured from birth yeah and she didn't have vision in that eye like she had no peripheral vision in that eye ever again did they sue I don't think they did. So it said something in the book like back then when you were at a military hospital like they'd be like oops well you you survived. You didn't lose the eye, so carry on. I think people were a little less litigious back then. Whoa. Especially we're in the middle of World War II, so they're like, people have greater problems than the fact that you have a lazy eye now, you know? It's so fucked up. It's so, so, so I'm fucked up. to wear up. goggles now during birth. <laughs> I don't think you have to worry about ether being slashed in your eye unless you are giving birth in 1940. <laughs> Unless you get into a time machine and they pop you out at a hospital, a military hospital in 1942, I'm not worried about you. Okay. Okay. Add so it to the avoid, list. Avoid the time machines. <laughs> I'll just scratch right. off Google Googles. I'll just scratch off goggles from my overnight bag. I'd really, I'd really like it if you like write your birth plan for your doctor, and it's like no ether. They're like, we really weren't thinking of using ether. Number two, their second-born child, a baby boy named Kenneth, died at only six months old. Her and John. Uh, it was not her and John. This is her and uh, okay. Marvin. Got it. So this is her first husband. So they had another child, a baby boy named Kenneth, and he died at only six months old due to complications that were attributed to an RH blood factor of Helen's. Several more miscarriages would result from the same condition. Basically, this is what happens when a mother has a different RH blood type than the yeah. baby. 
I mean, I'm sure you know, because we've both been through the testing to make sure that this didn't happen with our babies. Her body's antibodies attack the babies and it often results in miscarriage or death. Yeah. So now they can treat it easily with a shot and prenatal care, but it seems likely that at the time Helen would have had no idea why her children were dying. Oh, God. Yeah. So it just seems like a tragedy. You said children. Um, Are there more? Well, no, like they were just miscarriages. Okay. Like not just miscarriages. Miscarriages are tragedy in and of themselves. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. losses. What I meant is um, she had one child who was six months die and then she had several miscarriages. So she just didn't know why it was happening. Yep. Lastly, she was able to accompany her husband to Korea in 1947. But unfortunately, her husband, Marvin, was a big fan of keeping company with the bar girls and sex workers of Seoul, where STDs were rampant. 18 months after their arrival, Helen became seriously ill, jaundiced from a condition believed to be hepatitis. She and little Brenda would be emergency airlifted back to the United States. The condition would end up being undiagnosed syphilis, which would go untreated for years and cause poor Helen significant health problems in the decades to come. So if John hadn't killed her in a bizarre way, her first husband Marvin probably would have with the damage from the venereal disease. I take back my comment about bullying the day after. (laughs) Yeah, maybe she was celebrating that that bastard was gone because this is really I'd be drinking. Let's just go have some martinis and bowl, you know? (laughs) Like, fuck this. (laughs) Then he dies. So she gets sent home from Korea with – syphilis but she doesn't know they didn't test her for syphilis it's not till much much later that she finds out about the syphilis so they tell her it's hepatitis which is also sexually transmitted it can be at least did she know about the women i don't know i don't know if she did i think she did or she had some idea okay. um but it seems like she still carried a torch for him as far as idolizing him in some ways so I don't know what extent she knew so in the spring of 1951 that was when she found out about his death Um, in a message from the army she was informed that Marvin had died heroically and had been posthumously awarded the silver star the nation's highest award for valor after the medal of honor The citation the grieving young widow received with her notice of Marvin's award said that while serving with the 24th Infantry Division in Kunjongdong, Korea, on April 16th, 1951, Second Lieutenant Marvin Taylor, seeing that forward elements of the troops were pinned down as his company attacked Hill 404, left his platoon and joined the lead elements, which were without a leader. He exposed himself to enemy fire completely took over the situation his continuing exposure to enemy fire was an inspiration to all his men even after she was remarried to john helen kept a photo of marvin in a bureau drawer and always kept that letter close to her over the years she would take it out on occasion and read it out loud sometimes in the later years and with malicious intent she would read it out loud to john whoa Like, this is what a real man does. 
Yeah, I mean, I can see how she still, what did you say, held a torch to him? Yes. Yeah, she still had a torch. Yeah, because it's like if he comes home with those, you know, awards and you're Mm -hmm. a military wife, like – yeah, and her new husband like didn't even see combat, and yeah. he's he's an accountant, you know, like he's yeah, he's just like I, by all accounts they said that Marvin was very like a manly man, rugged, uh, huge personality, and she had Helen had a very outgoing personality too, and she was very good looking, and she was very social, and so her sister would say in the book, um, in Death Sentence that. Very much Marvin made sense for Helen in a way that John really didn't. You know, he was a little bit more introverted and nerdy. And and I think that she always held up her first husband as more of an ideal. We're like so lucky that we live in our times where we can, for the most part, I know there's still some really traditional families out there, but like with us in particular, like we got to marry who we wanted to marry. Yeah. And that there wasn't a stigma really about having sex before marriage because, <laughs> I mean, I know some families still go through that, but I think a lot of this too is like you you end up with the first person you have the hots for and and then you're like, oh, boo, we don't actually get along. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So John was discharged from the army not long after their wedding and the couple moved to Detroit where John got a job at Ernst & Ernst, a prestigious accounting firm. And they ended up settling down there, and they had three children. Patricia oh, wow. called Patty, yep, in 1955, John Frederick in 1956, and little Frederick Michael in 1958. So it seems like John Liss' blood type must have fit better with Helen's, yeah, because they had no problem conceiving and having three healthy children good yeah so by fred's birth the family had resettled in kalamazoo michigan john had a new job and helen was unfortunately in the throes of postpartum depression oh no i know she cannot catch a break so to combat the ppd her 50s era doctors who were being well-meaning let me guess prescribe pills and alcohol Yes, they would prescribe tranquilizers, which mixed extremely poorly with the alcohol she already drank. So she was just completely out of commish as a mother, wife, and human for these years. Because, I mean, think about it. If you even take, like, a Tylenol with drinking, I don't know. But, like, like tranquilizers with yeah, martinis, I it's I a literally bad thing. Just, like when we went through when we were like rearranging our plans we binged the queen's gamut did you watch that yet mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah and i learned so, so good. much it's about so good. oh my god it's amazing but i yeah. learned so much about the tranquilizers because i had no idea i was like what are those pills like <laughs> and i like looked it up and saw how they were just literally being prescribed to everyone and everyone and, and that's what they were crazy. giving her and so she was getting addicted to them just like in the queen's gambit yeah. But she was also just completely blotto because she was taking them all day. They were medically prescribed to her. Yeah, of course. The doctor says to take them. Exactly. So her illness caused significant strain on the family and John, even affecting John's work because Helen was so out of it that she would call and leave a message with his secretary 
that the baby messed his pants. And if he wanted his son cleaned, he'd have to come home and do it himself. So like she wasn't even changing diapers. She was just like out, out of it. And I mean, John's a terrible human who eventually massacres his entire family. But in this case, to his credit, every single time she called, he went home and changed that baby's diaper. Yeah, we were like just talking about that about changing diapers and stuff. It's, like, so sad for the babies. It's so sad for the baby to have to sit in it with no control. No. And, I mean, this is sad for Helen, too, because she had absolutely no control over her, you know, disorder and then her doctor's treatment of it, you know? So Brenda, which was, if you can remember, way back to 15 minutes ago, um, Helen's eldest daughter from Marvin, she was a teenager at this point, and she was like, I want to get out of this situation. Like, obviously, she was being forced to do a lot of the child care. Her mom was just out of it. She never really got along with John that well anyway. It was just a bad situation. So literally, the day she turned 18 – she got a marriage license and got married and got the hell out of Dodge, like on yeah. her 18th birthday. So she was like, see ya. In 1961, with Brenda gone and John's company going through an acquisition that left John nearly jobless, he ended up taking a new position with Xerox, which at the at the time, it was a brand new booming technology, having a copy machine. The family moved to Rochester, where it was headquartered, and Helen's mental health actually began to improve. The company had offered John $12,000 a year, which was nearly 3000 more than he had been paid in Kalamazoo, and more than $105,000 in today's money. So that was a good salary. Yep. Uh, the couple began to hire babysitters and go on dates. They even went on a European vacation. And John even did the unthinkable for a staunchly religious man. He got a vasectomy to prevent further unwanted pregnancies. So things were going well in their marriage. And by 1964, John was earning $25,000 a year, which is around $209,000 in 2020 money. And he began eyeing a role as a vice president within the growing company. However, his colleagues and higher-ups didn't agree that a promotion was likely for John. He was awkward, strident, rigid, and frankly unlikable. Oh, God. Yeah, John blamed his lack of upward progress on Helen, whom he believed drank too much at company events and embarrassed him. Uh, As evenings progressed, John would grow more dour and Helen more intoxicated. So Joe Sharkey ended up talking to one of John List's former bosses who kind of explained this dynamic. As John sulked, other men clustered around his wife, lighting her cigarette, looking into her eyes, offering her the last thing she needed, which was another drink. And Helen, seeing his long face with that basset hound look on it, and fully aware that she would have to suffer through an hour of his whining on the way home in the car, would say, the hell with it, and have a few more drinks, obviously just for spite, a woman who knew her said. With John seeming to invite her wrath with every drink she took, the inevitable moment would arrive when Helen would attack. Helen would get drunk, and then she would start talking about Marvin, her first husband, recalled Hutto, John's boss. John's face would get blotchy. He would grit his teeth, steer her away, and take her home. En route, he would complain about her making advances to other men. From time to time, even as long as 25 years later, long after Helen's death, 
John would manage to convey to friends his impression that Helen had been the cause of the trouble that always seemed to leap out from hiding to nip his career in the bud. But corroborating evidence was not easy to unearth. Most men who knew Helen at least liked her as a genuine human presence who knew how to talk about something other than office politics. If she drank too much at social events, one man said, so did others. It was the middle of the 60s, he said. It wasn't real unusual to get shit-faced at a party. Seriously, that's I mean, not why you're not getting promoted, dude. Exactly. This is also like Mad Men era. People yeah. having three martini lunches. I don't think they were being aghast at somebody having one too many cocktails at a party. Did he not drink? He was way more of a teetotaler. Teetotaler? Okay. Teetotaler? Teetotaler. Yeah, yeah, teetotaler. Like he would have a beer here or there, but Got he it. would so never he was being a get inebriated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At the end of the night, few people even seemed to have noticed, the man said. There was another recurring theme, moreover. After a few years, in job after job, John invariably would manage, evidently quite on his own, to wear out his initially enthusiastic welcome. In August 1965, John's title at Xerox was Director of Accounting Services, and that was as high as he would go. It wasn't just a deficiency in management skills that held him back, though this was a factor. The truth was he didn't have the necessary presence. At conferences, when he had to talk under stress, his face would suddenly break out into big red welts, said Hutto, his boss. I imagined they were hives. His face was always blotchy, and when he did talk, his face would twitch, his head would fall forward, and he would shift his body from side to side like a kid volunteering an answer at a spelling bee on television. Why why was he having to do, like, presentations and stuff? I think at any level of a big corporate company, if you get to a vice presidential level, you're going to have to be good at all of the yeah. things. Yeah. You're going to have to be good at networking. You're going to have to, you know, represent your department. You're going to have to go to the corporate headquarters and talk about, you know, that year's fiscal numbers or something if you're yeah. accounting, you know? Yeah. In an aspiring vice president, this was not a valuable trait. John had hit the end of the road in Rochester. What he really wanted was a big title, Hutto said. And when he kept asking for advancement, we had to tell him to look for another job. So this is going to be a trend in John's life. He seems like a smart guy, but nobody likes him and he can never keep a job. Yep. So John realized that it was the end of the road for him at Xerox, and after an extended job search, he found a comparable salary with a vice president title at the First National Bank of New Jersey and moved the family to Westfield, New Jersey. It was there that the family would move into their dream home, a rambling 1895-built mansion with faded glory called Breeze Knoll. It had 19 rooms, 10 fireplaces. Yeah, this place is giant. So uh, I think that there's some pictures I can find online. So I'll send you so we can put it on the Instagram. Whoa. Um, Listen to how how crazy this place is. 19 rooms, 10 fireplaces, a grand ballroom, a house with a ballroom, seven total bedrooms, and a billiards room. That's insane. Insane. Though it was assessed for $100,000 at the time. (laughs) (laughs) I know that seems like nothing. Had seen better days and the list were able to acquire it for a lowball offer of $50,000 in 1965. 
did someone die in there? Like what? It was just really run down. So that's the equivalent of about $363,000 in today's money, which still seems like a, a steal. But I think that they had to put considerable efforts into fixing it up. Okay. Also, it was really, really big. And this is in New Jersey. Think about the heating costs and the cooling costs and the Sounds like a nightmare. I mean, you know me. I'm like, yeah. I You like a very tight, very neat, very modern. Yeah. That sounds like a nightmare to me. Like more. It's going to like be so much work to keep up. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you completely. Uh, so the family was low on cash due to Helen's fondness for spending. So even though John was an accountant, um, he did try to keep Helen happy by giving her whatever she wanted. And they said like people who were related to the family or knew the family well said that the children had like the best of the best all the time. Like he bought his son like $300 glasses, which is like an absurd amount for eyeglasses and back then and back then is just insane and so it was basically like whatever Helen wanted Helen got because he was just an awkward guy who was bad at showing love to his family and that was like one way he could do it so they were always running out of money no matter how much money he made okay so John's mother Alma pitched in 10 grand to help with the down payment with the condition that she was able to move in Now, Helen wasn't crazy about this idea. I mean, I don't think anyone, even if you love your mother-in-law, I don't think anyone's crazy about the idea of shacking up together. And it wasn't like an in-law suite or anything. It was like in-house. They they built, they kind of built her one. So she really, but Helen really, really liked this house. And she had, I think that after having so many issues, she was really excited to have this grand project. And they thought with his new job that they were going to have enough money that she could really just renovate and design everything exactly how she wanted um, and have this like gorgeous place that was just like her project. Um, So she really wanted it. So she said, okay, to Alma moving in. And what they did is they basically created an attic apartment. So the entire third floor of the house was just Alma's and it was like an its own in-law apartment. So this would prove to be a deadly mistake for Alma, unfortunately. Within a year of the move and the purchase of the aging mansion, disaster struck. Helen's health deteriorated again, and she was diagnosed with cerebral atrophy, a degenerative shrinkage of brain tissues that can be symptomatic of many ills, including the viral infection she had contracted in Korea and had led to full-blown syphilis. So unfortunately for Helen, alcohol and tranquilizers only aggravate symptoms, which can include sporadic mental disorientation and paranoia. I know. Just because her husband banged the wrong broad. Yikes. In the midst of this, John was fired from his job with a bank with only a year under his belt. Apparently the role called for a certain quota of sales that John couldn't meet. If it hasn't become abundantly apparent yet, John List was not exactly a people person. Humiliated, instead of telling his family he would leave at the same time every day, drive to downtown Westfield, and sit in the train station for eight hours. Eight hours? 
Because he didn't want to tell them that he was fired. Yeah, but what do you even do for eight hours back then? Like, you don't even have a phone. He would read a book. A, it's fucked up to lie to your family about that. And B, like, that's, I mean, that's going to make you crazy in and of itself. Yeah, and they were already just skating by with money. So obviously this is really bad. To make ends meet, he had to start stealing from his mother's savings account, her retirement and all of her, you know, inheritance from his father. Oh, God. Uh Uh-huh. So he starts dipping into his elderly mother's savings account so he can pay the mortgage and all the bills. And he's not telling Helen that he lost his job. So she's just spending like normally. Well, she's also like disoriented. So even if she did tell her. Out of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so he vowed to replace what he had stolen, but the financial news just kept tightening as he finally did find a job at the end of 1967, but it only paid $12,000 a year, which was less than half as much as he had made in his two previous jobs. And then he was out of that job when the new company relocated and they did not ask John to come with them. Yikes, so he just cannot keep a job. He could not keep a job, and he was too proud to be honest with his family about what was going on. Meanwhile, Helen's condition had gotten so bad that she required hospitalization and was diagnosed with general paresis, which is also known as paralytic dementia, which is a severe neuropsychiatric disorder. So she was so bad at this point that the doctors believed that she needed to be institutionalized, but he wouldn't hear of it, and I don't know if it was because of pride he wanted to take care of his wife himself or he couldn't afford it or why but he was just trying to keep his family together well Helen is very very disoriented very ill and he has no money and no job Um, so he finally got a job selling mutual funds making markedly less than he was accustomed to and this was a type of of situation where he could work from home so he could take care of Helen. But it was a very kind of low-level sale type thing where it was commission-based only. So it's, you know, kind of like in the sales world, they call it eat what you kill. Okay. And he wasn't a very good sales guy. So he is not making enough money at this point. And his home so he's like refinancing their home so he's mortgaged the hilt he's stealing from his mother uh patty helen and john's eldest was becoming a very spirited teenager by then and she was experimenting with boys and weed and gasp the theater the worst of all (laughs) and she was in john's opinion turning away from god and the lutheran church so he feels like he's losing control Of everything, yeah. Everything. So the walls are closing in on him. He would spend most days desperately attempting to keep the family and finances afloat, feeling lost and persecuted. The only thing that he did during this time period was go up to his mother's apartment and they would spend hours reading the Bible. That was like his stress relief. Oh my God, that's your stress relief? Yeah, this is is bad. This is a bad situation. In 1971, Patricia, who now went by Pat, was 16, beautiful, and like I said, extremely spirited in, in really like the best way. She was just a really singular, you know, girl who was passionate and excited about life. She worked at an insurance agency as a file clerk after school and even got her 13-year-old youngest brother, Fred, a job there doing janitorial work. 
The siblings were not dumb. They were pretty smart kids, and they had a feeling that their father's job, in quotation marks, was not going well. The selling of mutual funds, like I said, was the commission-based only thing, and he was a terrible salesperson. Yeah. Kids wanted some security of their own, and they were willing to work hard to achieve it. While maintaining her grades and her job, Pat also was a beloved and talented member of the Westfield Drama Club, where she got especially close to the high school drama teacher. So going back to the kids, though, for a second, like, it's really sweet that they both knew that their dad was having problems financially and they were willing to work to make a paycheck to, like, save some money for themselves but also contribute to the household funds. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what you got to do. They're just good kids, you know? Yeah. Um, So anyway, so she's also in the drama club and this is where it gets a little hanky because – she gets very, very close to this intense 40-year-old drama teacher named Ed Iliano. So Pat began to pay Ed out of her insurance money for one-on-one acting lessons, and he became a very important male figure in her life and somewhat of a mentor. As a young aspiring actress, he said, Pat wasn't the type who hits you between the eyes. She wasn't one of these sweet-faced, sexy kids at all. After a while, you just knew she was there, but it took time. But her staying power was very great, and she got better. Sometimes you see some in the beginning, and they're spectacular, and then they fade, and they drop out after the first week. But there was something about her. She just stayed and stayed with it. I have never in my life, before or since, known a girl like Pat, he said. She wasn't a child. She wasn't giddy, wasn't pretentious. She had the face, the figure, the intelligence, the stick-to-itness. She could have made it. The kid wanted to work. She'd show up with her lines memorized every time without fail. And we're not talking about easy stuff. So you'll see. We'll talk about it. It's, you know, Ed ends up denying any, like, anything untoward with with Pat. But the two were extremely close. Uh, Pat's stage debut came playing the role of stupefying Jones in the play Little Abner. The character is defined by her sexiness and she does a little suggestive bump and grind dance during the show, causing which did cause wolf whistles from the audience. Pat absolutely lit up the stage. She did great in the role and everyone just loved her performance except for her father. Yeah, no shit. Who was horrified and he didn't even wait for the curtain call he went and sat in the car while her mother and her brothers finished watching the show wow also this is like the 70s by now dude come on yes this is the 70s we've already made it through like the swinging 60s the summer of love get with the times john yeah come on so yeah so basically at this point He's straight up effed and he thinks his family's going to hell in a handbasket, you know? So I think it's also because she didn't have a supportive, loving father figure and obviously was just wildly misunderstood by him that she was even more trying to get close to this drama teacher, you know? And it kind of seems like she started fixating on him. In the summer of 1971, she told him that she was in love with him, a declaration she reiterated in letters to several friends at the time. She told me that she wanted to marry me, Ed said, though she added that this would, of course, have to occur at some point in the future. 
She was very matter-of-fact about it. Ileano knew that Pat had several boyfriends, none of whom her father approved of. He dismissed her talk as adolescent prattle. All the same, he was strangely taken with the girl. He found himself paying more attention to Pat than might have been considered appropriate in a male-female teacher-student relationship. They met in innocent social situations, such as when group members would adjourn to a local diner after workshop. Knowing that she now loathed calling her father for a ride home, Ed began driving her, even though he lived in the opposite direction. And sometimes when Pat wanted to talk things over, they began taking the long way home and then even pulling over to sit and talk. It was just talk. But he knew well the peril if some people in Westfield, ever mindful of the comings and goings of teenagers and out-of-towners, Ed lived well on the other side of the tracks in Elizabeth, began gossiping about a relationship. I was close to Pat, Ed said. She confided in me, and I liked being with her. He believed he had helped her channel her energies and deal with some frustrations. But he wasn't a social worker or a psychologist. He was a teacher employed by the town, and he was uneasy, undoubtedly more in hindsight, about being too close to the girl. I mean, I think for good reason. Yeah, is she – and you said she's 16 at this age? She's 16. This? Yeah. Yeah. It's just, I mean, I think that he had good impulses, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> Giving him the benefit of the doubt here is a, a teenage kid who's clearly crying out for some attention. Yeah. But you definitely need to have boundaries if you are an authority figure in these types of situations. Yeah. I don't know if he, car chats are like I really appropriate. Late night, long way home car chats are the way to go, especially no. if you're not trained for this. He's a drama teacher. He's like they said, he's not a social worker. He's not a psychologist. So, yeah, in October of 1971, less than a month before the gruesome murders would take place, John List took stock of his financial situation, and it was dismal. There were three mortgages on the house, totaling almost $50,000 all in arrears, and he had only made $4,900 for all of 1971. Whoa. Yeah. Right now, in his home, a 16-year-old girl and a 13-year-old boy were bringing in the only steady paychecks. On top of that, his mother's retirement savings were pretty much gone thanks to his pilfering. (gasps) So he did allow Pat to have a Halloween party, and that's where guests were scowled at by him. And some of the more observant kids noticed a bizarre lack of furniture in the huge house. John had been slowly selling off piece by piece in a last-ditch effort to keep the house. He sold the second car, which no one drove anyway because Helen was super-duper sick at this point. Is she in the hospital sick or just at home still? She's she's still at home. She was no longer drinking, but that was only because she was so sick, drifting in and out of lucidity, that booze no longer had appeal. To accept the increasingly apparent fact that his wife was mentally ill would have been impossible, even without the other terrible burdens that had piled up. To accept the fact that Helen was in fact dying, on the other hand, would have been inconvenient. He spent long nights without sleep, and his tortured mind groped for rationalization. He wasn't to blame. John never blamed himself for anything. Helen was to blame, and Patty was growing up just like her. And now he would act to save them for another world and himself for this one. After dinner on Friday, November 5th, John List stood in the kitchen at the rear of the house. He told one of the boys to go get his sister and brother. When Pat, John, and Fred were seated anxiously at the table, John looked reproachfully at them. He told them directly what he had been hinting at for several months. Sternly, 
with no equivocation whatsoever, he advised these children to be prepared to die because they would do so soon. This is from uh, Joe Sharkey's book and account. Would they prefer to be buried or cremated, he asked. Buried, the shocked children replied one by one. Then he walked out of the room and calmly shut his office door behind him. No one knows what the children might have said to each other that night, but it is evident at least the two older ones, Pat and Johnny, now believe that they were going to die. So that very night that he did that at dinner, Pat was going back to the school for a drama workshop. So Ed Iliano noticed that the teen was completely out of sorts and weepy all evening. So he offered her a ride home so they could chat and she burst into tears as soon as the car started driving away. So this is what she reportedly said to him uh, from Joe Sharkey's account with Ed Eliano. And Helen wasn't at dinner. No, Ellen, Helen was in bed. So it was okay. just him and his kids. It's my father. She had stopped crying. Mr. Eliano, my father is going to kill me. He's going to kill me. She began weeping again. Ed smiled, aware that he had probably conveyed the same sentiments on occasion to his own teenage daughter. In an avuncular tone, he assured her, nobody's going to kill you, Pat. She looked at him as if he were an idiot. Angrily, she repeated, he said he's going to kill me. My brother's too. He said that, Mr. Iliano. She pushed herself across the street. She pushed herself across the seat as far away as she could get. Her eyes glowed with resentment. He said that. What are you talking about? He said. Her eyes were accusing. He took us into the kitchen. He sat us down and he said, he flat out told us we should be prepared to die. He said he would kill you. That's exactly what he was saying. There was no doubt about it. Look, Patricia, he said quite sternly, I'm not going to let anybody kill you. Let's get that straight. Her look said, what bullshit. It made him feel as if he was the child, not she. Listen, she said, as if explaining something carefully to a six-year-old. If he tells you he's going to take the family on a trip for a couple weeks, that's it. That's how he's going to do it. Do what? Do it. He's going to make it look like we went away. He told you that? Yes. Ed was dumbfounded. Why would he tell you something like that? At this, she laughed. That was a good question. A very good question. The girl laughed at the patently ridiculous knowledge that her father had been so deliberate that he had told them right down to the details. Maybe the man was simply out of his mind after all. So they just like kind of end up laughing about it. Like he's kind of like, if he's really going to kill you, why would he tell you he's going to kill you? And she's like. Yeah, but she's also not eight. She's 16. Like that's like almost a grown woman. Like you got to listen to what she's saying, you know, like. Mm -hmm. I think also. It makes me feel sick. It's, I mean, she begged him for help. I, I think. He later talks about, and we'll get into it, his guilt about this. And I think that a lot of it had to do with the fact that he didn't want to explain to any authorities why he was so close to a 16-year-old girl. So if he, like, went to the police and was like, hey, this girl told me that her dad's going to kill her. Yeah, but as a teacher, don't you think that's kind of your responsibility too? Like, I mean, I think so. Why? I mean, why do you think he didn't report it? Do you think that he just – Maybe they were a little bit more involved than they – Than he'd like to lead us to believe. Yeah. And that – like because I feel like if there was nothing to be worried about, I mean, I definitely would report that to authorities. That's insane. Absolutely. And I think any teacher would nowadays for sure. Yeah. 
Yeah. So it's well, either because, that something yeah. weird was going on or that they just didn't listen to teenagers back then. I don't know. Yeah. It could be either. So two days later on a Sunday, Ed made a visit to the list house and he said it was to drop off a book for Pat, but it was really to check out the home situation. So this was kind of his way of being like, I'm checking it out. I'm making sure that everything's okay. So Pat actually wasn't home, but he Uh was greeted by middle son, John, who by this time was a very tall, athletic young man. And Helen was up and she was kind of lucid at this point. So he ended up talking to Helen for a little while and giving her the book to give Pat. And then as he was leaving, John cornered Ed and he grabbed his arm urgently and he said, Mr. Iliano, whenever you are in this neighborhood, please come by. Please understand you are welcome here any time. There was a quiet hysteria, Ed recalled to author Joe Sharkey years later. That young boy was scared. Okay, yeah, I didn't know if you were talking about John Jr. or John Sr. Yeah, that's John Jr. He's like, Come by anytime you're around. Like, these kids were scared, but they didn't know what to do. So sad. It's so sad. So the next night was Monday, November 8th. Ed received a phone call from Pat List. It would be the last time he would ever speak to her. So this is what she said over the phone. Mr. Iliano, you better get over here pretty quick, she said evenly. It was almost an I told you so tone of voice. What do you mean? What's the matter? I can't do it. You come here to see me, he replied, aware that he couldn't come up with another plausible excuse to visit the list house. Ed was already on thin ice with his wife, from whom he would shortly be separated. I can't, Pat whimpered. I'm having my period and I've got violent cramps. This was exactly the sort of thing that complicated the relationship with this girl, he thought peevishly. It was as if she meant to keep him uncomfortable. He was tired and annoyed at this. There was nothing he could do, not at eight o'clock on a Monday night. I just can't come over, he said flatly, putting an end Ugh. to the conversation. I've got a full schedule. Oh, God. He never talked to her ever again. He had to have felt horrible. Horrible. So this is where it's going to get to be a rough ride. On Tuesday, November 9th, 1971, John woke and set his diabolical plan in action. First, he phoned to have the newspaper delivery stopped immediately. He packed a briefcase and a small suitcase for his upcoming flight. John watched impassively as his children left for school. Beautiful, vivacious Patty left first, getting a ride with a friend in a late model car. Then the boys left as well, catching a ride with their usual carpool. Once the house was silent, John collected two pistols. One, a twenty-two Colt automatic that he had inherited from his father, and the other, the Steyer 1912 automatic he had brought back from World War II. At 8.30 that morning, the milkman came to the door to collect that week's order and only found a note in John List's handwriting to stop deliveries until further notice because the family was going on vacation. This was odd, as Helen usually wrote the notes and instructed him on how much to leave, but the milkman thought nothing of it as he shrugged and went on with his business. John watched him leave from a window. Within 10 minutes of the milkman's departure, Helen came downstairs and filled a kettle for coffee. He listened as the whistle blew and Helen fixed herself a cup, settling in at the kitchen table. Silently, John approached her from behind, just a bit to her left. As he raised the barrel of the styre about 18 inches from his wife's head, 
she sensed the motion and turned her head slightly. Joe Sharkey described the motion kind of heartbreakingly. He said that her chin tilted up the way a woman would to be kissed on the cheek at a party. Oh, God. John fired. The bullet hit her in the jaw and knocked her to the floor. As the blood pooled around Helen, John took several more shots, not even bothering to aim. Satisfied she was dead, he ran up the back stairs to the third floor and his mother's quarters. Barging in on her without knocking, he found her in her small kitchen holding a plate with a pat of butter on it, waiting next to a toaster. Alma startled and asked him, what was that noise downstairs? In response, he raised the gun and shot her once above the left eye at close range. The plate smashed to the ground. I know this is brutal and methodical. And the elderly woman was blown off her feet. Involuntarily, John fired off a few more shots. On the counter, the toast popped out of the toaster. He, like, had to think about this so many times. So many times. He was planning this for weeks. Gross. He tried to drag her body downstairs and failed. So she wasn't, like, a fat woman. She wasn't a big woman by any means. But she was a tall woman and she had, you know, big bones. He finally, with much effort, placed her on a plastic carpet runner from her apartment, and then he dragged her into a narrow hallway just off the kitchen. Why? He he basically was supposed to take her downstairs to be with Helen's corpse, Okay, but he could not carry her. She was too heavy. Why was he trying to put them together? I don't know. This was all his plan. Okay. I guess, I mean, maybe it was so that they were more easily found. I don't know. Whatever, sick fuck. Yeah, I did not know what was going through his head. So he ended up like forcing her into this tiny hallway near a cistern and he crammed the bloody runner in after her. Then he did a haphazard job cleaning it, but then abandoned the entire task to go back downstairs and deal with Helen's body. John dragged her body by the feet into the ballroom, leaving behind them a 40-foot trail of blood. He rolled her body into two sleeping bags zipped together and arranged her bathrobe to cover her legs. Next, he used a bath and kitchen towel to cover her body and face. John ran to the master bedroom where he reportedly wiped his bloody hands all over their bedspread for some unknown reason. Then he vomited and then he showered. Yeah, and changed out of his bloody clothes. Okay. So he went back downstairs in an immaculate business suit and neatly combed hair. Immaculate business suit that he probably didn't buy with his own money. (laughs) Exactly. So he was due at a 10 a.m. meeting with the branch manager of State Mutual Life at that point, and he called now to cancel that meeting. He said he wouldn't be able to reschedule as his wife's mother was extremely ill and he needed to take the family on an extended trip to North Carolina to tend to her for the foreseeable future. Next, John sat down at his desk to write notes to explain the children's future absences from school. So he wrote to Westfield High School, Our daughter Patricia is a student in the 11th grade at Westfield High. She will be out a few days since we had to make an emergency trip to North Carolina. We left after the school was closed, so I'm sending this to you to explain her absence. And then he also wrote to Roosevelt Junior High, 
Our sons, John and Fred, ninth and 8th grades, attend Roosevelt. They will be out for several days as we had to make an emergency trip to North Carolina. This happened after the school was closed. He also wrote a similar note to KMV Associates, the insurance office where Patty and Fred worked after school. After addressing them, he put them aside on his desk. So now he had nothing but time to kill, pun intended. Sorry, guys. Until Patty came home at 5 p.m., so he went out in his business suit and raked the leaves, which is really bizarre. Did anyone see him? Yes. So a neighbor recalled seeing him, and she said that she thought it was strange, A, because he seemed to be purposely, like, avoiding her eyes and not waving to her, and that he was also doing yard work dressed as though he was going to church. So afterwards, it's super weird. Plus, it was very, very cold out this day. So it was like odd that it was the middle of the day and he was doing this chore in the freezing cold. Yeah. So he came inside and fixed himself a sandwich inside the bloody kitchen. Like this is where he shot his wife and he's just making himself a sandwich. And no one heard the gunshots or anything? Nope. So I think that the house stood on – you could see the house from the neighbor's home. Yeah. But I still think there was enough distance and the house was big enough that you pro- maybe the sound didn't carry or something. So wild. As wild. So I can hear off- – I mean, I guess our houses are all really close here. But, like, I – we have gunshots all the time. Obviously, I live in, like, northeast LA. Yeah. Um, but, like, you – I can, like – they're so loud. I just can't. I mean, I'm kind of surprised, too, because there's a gun range not too far from my house. And I can randomly hear it some days. Really? Yeah. Um, I guess if you like also don't know what it sounds like, you would think it's like a big thud, you know, like back then. And apparently everyone was on tranquilizers, so they probably weren't paying attention anyway. (laughs) Most likely. They were on – it's the 70s. They were on tranquilizers or quaaludes. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my God. So, yeah, he made himself a sandwich. And then just after noon, he got a call from Patty at the school saying that she was feeling sick and needed to come home. And she asked him if he would come pick her up. Though annoyed at the disruption to his meticulous plan, he agreed. I mean, he didn't really have a choice. Was he going to say no? Yeah. So he went and picked her up. They rode in silence on the short drive home. Then John parked the car in the usual spot and he raced ahead of her to beat her inside. There he collected the gun from his hiding spot and laid in wait. Patty gathered her books and entered the kitchen through the laundry room mere minutes later. John waited as she passed and shot her once in the back of the head from behind. What a fucking piece of shit, pussy-ass bitch. You're shooting your little daughter in the back of the fucking head? Your firstborn baby girl. I mean, I guess she is a sinner doing that dance on stage, you know? An actress. Oh, he then dragged her body into the ballroom and lay it next to her mother's. Ugh, so fast. Despicable. Around this is one like, of- it reminds me of the um, the house is up by you where the guy like went crazy. He said it was like demonic. Uh, oh, the Amityville horror? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he just kind of goes on like this crazy mindless spree, you know? It, yeah. It kind of reminds me of that vibe. Yeah, and that real-life true story was the son in it, the son and the brother of those people. But it's the same situation. He killed his whole family. Wait, what do you mean? So the Amityville Horror is based on a real-life true crime story. Yeah, the house is, like, not far from you. 
Yeah, it's not. Isn't that yeah. crazy? It's like I think it's in Long Island or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's kind but, of like one of those, one of these big old houses too. Yeah. Super creepy. So creepy. That in that one though, he said they say that like the house was possessed and like controlled him and caused him to do all of that. But this the I don't know, it's weird how they like moved into this mansion and then everything kind of crumbled. It's like a similar vibe to me. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, I mean, I don't know. I think this guy was a ticking time bomb. I'm not going to yeah, blame it. It sounds like it. It sounds like it. Yeah. <laughs> Other people have lived in the house with no problem. <laughs> yeah. No. I I mean, they did get it for half as much. So who yeah, knows? Yeah, they but... did. Also, well, let me finish talking to you about this specific day and then I'll tell you what happens to the house. Okay, cool. Like, we might have to start some conspiracy theories about this one because I didn't even think about the supernatural aspect, but it kind of sounds spooky dooky and kind of works with this story okay um so around one o'clock he washed and changed his clothes again and he began the day's errands he drove downtown stopping first at a drive-in branch of the suburban trust company where he cashed a personal check for 85 dollars drawn on his joint checking account with helen Neatly, he entered the balance 2414 in the front of the checkbook. Then he went to the post office where he ordered the family's mail held for 30 days and he mailed the letters to the children's schools. John carried on to the bank that held his mother's accounts. He closed them out, taking the remaining balance of $2,000. Alma had had more than $50,000 in savings from her late husband's estate. So that loser asshole had stolen Forty-eight thousand dollars in the course of like four or five years. Wow, mm-hmm. that is so messed up. So messed up. When young Fred arrived at KMV Associates at three o'clock after school, he was immediately alarmed not to find his sister there. A secretary informed him that their father had called in sick for her, and so the secretary later talked to the police and she said she would never forget how accusatory the 13-year-old boy's tone was when he phoned his father and demanded, what happened to Patty? Fred insisted on coming home because he was worried about Patty. So it would be a brave and fatal mistake. John picked the boy up and once again hurried inside before him. Just as he had with his sister, John grabbed the gun he had left in the corner just behind the kitchen door as he heard his son enter through the laundry room. So he ended up shooting his youngest son like face to face in the front, but this poor kid didn't even have time to take his coat off. He died with a single bullet wound to the head. Duh. I mean, that's like, uh, it's a little baby. (laughs) Just a little. He was 13 years old. Ugh. Placing his youngest child's body on another sleeping bag, he dragged him into the ballroom and positioned him next to his mother. His head was tilted so it just barely touched Helen's. So John barely had time to consider his grisly acts when there was another unexpected change to his murder schedule. John, Oh, Jr. God, you poor thing. I know, it's so inconvenient for you. John Jr.'s soccer practice had been cut short due to unseasonably frigid weather. In fact, that fateful day in November, like I briefly mentioned before, was a record low, only a couple degrees above freezing. So it was as cold as John Liss' heart, if you will. He doesn't have a heart. 
No. John Liss Sr. happened to see Junior coming up the driveway around 4 p.m., swinging his gym bag, blissfully unaware of the House of Horrors and the terrible fate in store for him. And John Sr. scrambled into the same assassin position he had used for his other two children. Assassins giving him too much credit. Agreed. The same cowardly (laughs) position he had assumed for his first two children. (laughs) However, it seems that John, young John, may have heard his father scrambling behind the door because unlike his brother and sister, he did not enter the kitchen unaware. So this is Joe Sharkey's account of John Liss' murder of his last remaining family member, and it is just devastating. He saw his murderer coldly level the gun at him, for the boy managed to dodge. The first bullet caught him not in the head where it was aimed, but in the back. The next shot didn't kill him either. The boy wouldn't die. With a pistol in each hand, his father began firing wildly. The brawny teenager tried to crawl across the floor to safety, but it was hopeless. He was on his knees with his back to his murderer. But the gunman, his father, was in control of the situation, firing now with a twenty-two. The room thundered with gunfire. Yeah, this is crazy that the neighbors didn't hear this. The boy refused to die quickly. Again and again, his father fired the twenty-two until it clicked empty. Finally, the boy stopped moving. He lay still on the floor, still wearing his winter gloves. John had not wanted any of them to suffer, and anyone could see that John Jr. had died in agony. But it was done now. He dragged his 15-year-old son along the bloody trail to the ballroom, where he positioned him on the far end of the grim tableau atop the unfurled sleeping bags that John List and his two boys had once shared happily in the woods, on camping trips where they lay to sleep, father and sons listening to crickets chirp in the summer darkness beyond the fading embers of a campfire. Ever meticulous, John put the finishing touches on his terrible display. Still clad in their winter coats, his children's bodies now repose side by side, face up. John tugged at the sleeping bags until their edges all met neatly. He bent down to move Helen's stiffening arm carefully so that it rested on Freddie's shoulder in what appeared to be a futile gesture of protection. From 10 feet away, the bodies appeared to be arranged in the form of a cross. In the waning light of day, their murderer knelt on the ballroom floor and began to pray in the name of Alma, Helen, Patricia, John, and Frederick. He said, Almighty, everlasting, and most merciful God, thou who dost summon and take us out of this sinful and corrupt world to thyself through death, that we may not perish by continual sinning, but pass through death to life eternal. Help us, we beseech thee, to know and believe this with our whole heart, to the end that we may rejoice in our departure, and at thy call cheerfully enter into thine everlasting kingdom, through Jesus Christ thy Son, our Lord. Amen. Ew. Ugh. He feels so righteous about this. It's disgusting. So his bloody work done, John called his pastor to tell him the family would be headed to North Carolina and he would be unable to teach his Sunday school class for the next couple weeks. The pastor advised him not to worry about it and promised to keep the family in his prayers. Little late for that, Padre. Can't believe he's a Sunday school teacher. 
This is our second Sunday school teacher. So we had Candy Montgomery in episode four. All my axes, guys. It's a good one. And this is only our 21st or 22nd episode, I think. 22nd, yeah. Yep. And so that means like 10% of the murderers we've had have been Sunday school teachers. <laughs> we got to keep a tally on these Sunday school teachers, huh? It's it's wild. We might have had another one. I'm like, it's kind of like bothering me. I, I think thought we, had we did. I thought we did a few episodes ago. Me too. Okay. Because I feel like we talked about this. Um, I mean, the last episode, they were really religious, but they weren't Sunday school teachers. I'm trying to think of when we had a Sunday school teacher. If you guys know, DM us and tell us who our third Sunday school teacher is. John then phoned Ed Iliano at the school, and he, instead of getting Ed, he reached his assistant, Barbara Sheridan. He told her he just put Helen and the kids on a plane to North Carolina, and he'd be joining them the next morning. He advised her that Patty would be missing the next few weeks of rehearsal and would unfortunately have to drop out as an understudy for the Blanche Dubois character in the drama club's production of A Streetcar Named Desire. So Barbara wished them well. She did not think anything of it, and she didn't immediately pass on the message to Ed. And I do wonder, I wonder if John would have been caught a lot sooner, like immediately, if Ed had gotten the message right away. Or if he had answered the call, you know? Yeah. I mean, how the fuck does this go on for 18 years? We're about to find out. So he finally sat down to compose letters to his loved ones. He wrote letters to his mother-in-law, his sister-in-law. So Helen's mom and sister. His mother, Alma's sister, so his aunt, and his boss at State Mutual. And he even instructed his boss on which leads to follow up that he had been close to closing, which is crazy. And finally, he saved the most confessional letter for his pastor. So this is what he wrote in his confession letter. Dear Pastor Rewinkle, I'm very sorry to add this additional burden to your work. I know that what I have done is wrong from all that I have been taught and that any reasons that I might give will not make it right. But you are the one person that I know that, while not condoning this, will at least partially understand why I felt like I had to do this. One, I wasn't earning anywhere near enough to support us. Everything I tried seemed to fall to pieces. True, we could have gone bankrupt and maybe gone on welfare. Two, but that brings me to my next point. Knowing the type of location that one would have to live in, plus the environment for the children, plus the effect on them knowing they were on welfare, was just more than I thought they could and should endure. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Do you think they'd rather be dead? I know that they were willing to cut back, but this involved a lot more than that, especially because these kids were willing to get jobs and work. They were unbelievably strong. They would have no, done anything. Ego- His ego is the only reason that Mm -hmm. he had to kill them. Yeah. Three, with Pat being so determined to get into acting, I was also fearful as to what this might do to her continuing to be a Christian. I'm sure it wouldn't have helped. Four, also with Helen not going to church, which, how was she supposed to go to church? She could barely function. I knew that this would harm the children eventually in their attendance. I had continued to hope that she would begin to come to church soon. But when I mentioned this to her, that Mr. Jutsey wanted to pay her an elder's call, she just blew up and stated that she wanted her name taken off the church rolls. Again, this could only have given me an adverse result for the children's continued attendance. 
So that is the sum of it. If any one of these had been the condition, we might have pulled through, but this was just too much. At least I'm certain that all have gone to heaven now. If things had gone on, who knows if that would have been the case. Oh, yeah, you saved him, you piece of shit. Mm-hmm. Ugh, of course. God, he makes me sick. He's disgusting. Also, this is the most evil and revolting thing you can do to a family that you supposedly lovingly created and swore to protect, you know? Of course, mother got involved because doing what I did to my family would have been a tremendous shock to her at this age. Therefore, knowing that she is also a Christian, I felt it best that she be relieved of the troubles of this world that would have hit her. Or maybe because you stole every single penny from her retirement fund and didn't exactly. have to call her. Exactly. You self-serving piece <clears throat> of shit. After it was all over, I said some prayers for them all from the hymn book. That was the least I could do. Now for the final arrangements. Helen and the children have all agreed that they would prefer to be cremated. That wasn't true. Remember the kids said they wanted to be buried? Yeah, and also that's like so sick that he asked them what they wanted. And then follow through because it was cheaper. It's cheaper to cremate than to have to buy caskets and yeah he probably did the like five for one special you know Uh uh-huh throw them all in the oven together why not he doesn't give a shit please see to it that costs are kept low he said that for mother she has a plot at the frankenmuth church cemetery he's married to it's like this guy that he says that they should contact also i'm leaving some letters in your care please send them on and add whatever comments you think appropriate and he explains the relationships with the letters that he left Also, I don't know what will happen to the books and other personal things, but to the extent possible, I'd like for them to be distributed as you see fit. Some books might go into the church or school library. Originally, I'd planned this for November 1st, All Saints Day, but travel arrangements were delayed. I thought it would be an appropriate day for them to get to heaven. So see, he had been planning this for a while. Yeah. Also, November 1st is Alden's birthday. I know. I know. (laughs) As for me, please let me be dropped from the congregation rolls. I leave myself in the hand of God's justice and mercy. I don't doubt that he is able to help us, but apparently he saw fit not to answer my prayers the way I had hoped that they would be answered. This makes me think that perhaps it was best as far as the children's souls are concerned. Not your decision, bro. Ugh. I know that many will only look at the additional years they could have lived, but if finally they were no longer Christians, what would have been the point? Oh my God. Isn't this insane? What did the pastor do with that letter? So um, he wanted to keep it, but it actually went back to the police station as evidence, obviously. Okay. Yeah. Also, I'm sure many will say, how could anyone do such a horrible thing? My only answer is it isn't easy and was only done after much thought. One more thing. It may seem cowardly to have always shot from behind, but I didn't want any of them to know, even at the last second, that I had to do this to them. John got hurt more because he seemed to struggle longer. The rest were immediately out of pain. John probably didn't consciously feel anything either. The murderer then crossed out the word probably and continued. Uh huh. What is remember- wrong with this cat? He's sick. Dude. Or, or maybe it's your theory and he's possessed. <laughs> then he just like runs off. 
Uh-huh. Please remember me in your prayers. I will need them whether or not the government does its duty as it sees Go season. fuck yourself in your fucking prayers. Uh-huh. Like, you don't get one prayer, dude. This is, like, this is This worse poor pastor. Last. Could you imagine someone in your, pra- in your like, church doing this up. shit? Ugh. Oh, God, it's terrible. It's so terrible. Nathaniel's grandfather is a minister or a reverend. I can never remember which, but um, God, I can't imagine if one of his people did this. Mm. Oh, my gosh. Um, Please remember me in your prayers. I will need them whether or not the government does its duty as it sees it. I'm only concerned with making my peace with God. And of this, I am assured because of Christ dying even for me. P.S. Mother's in the hallway in the attic, third floor. She was too heavy to move. So this is a note that Joe Sharkey says. Even in his confession, John lied. The autopsies of the bodies would subsequently make it clear that of the five, only Patty had been shot in the back of the head. For the others, their last vision in life clearly was that of John aiming a pistol at their heads. Yeah, it's he's there's just he's not all there. So I mean, you can tell by like, I mean, there's so many signs, but he's not there. No, no. So he he then like wrote another note and he taped it to the top of his desk. He said to the finder, please contact the proper authorities. The key to this desk is in an envelope addressed to myself. The key to the files are in the desk. So after that, his dark death sentence carried out, he dropped to his knees and prayed some more. He then fixed himself dinner, showered and dressed once more, loaded his suitcase into the car. He stopped at KMV Associates in the dark evening to slip the note excusing his children's absences. And then it was a drive east and then south, Westfield, his family and his troubles behind him. He left the family car in long-term parking at JFK Airport, and then he faded into a crowd of travelers. John List wouldn't be found for 18 years. That is crazy. Crazy. Because, like, he's obviously, like, not all there. So it's like, how did he, like, manage? I guess he just had that one-track mind that he had to, like, stay anonymous. Is that I think the right word? it's interesting because if you look back to what like his high school friends said, they yeah. were like, "Oh, he kind of just faded into the background. He didn't really have any friends." So like Kept that to himself, of, that type of personality was probably forgettable, perfect, forgettable, at at just fading into the background of life. Did you watch any like un- of the new unsolved mysteries? No, I hate unsolved mysteries. Okay, because well, there's I like when things are unsolved. <laughs> I know, same. So I actually forgot that it was unsolved mysteries while I was watching it, and yeah. every episode I was like, "What the fuck?" <laughs> what? That's like, why I didn't watch them because they're so interesting, but it drives me crazy. I need no, but closure. you you need to watch this one case that okay. is very, 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 very similar to this about this guy in France who did the same exact thing and killed all of his family members and it was because of financial hardship and he disappeared and they still haven't found him oh he pulled a john list yep fucking jacques list over there jacques list (laughs) yep oh And, and he was kind of similar too like he was a very like forgettable just whatever you know father of I think they had two or three kids as well and 
the same type of thing. Shot all of them, put them all under the house. Like oh. pe- th- people thought he was on vacation. Mm-hmm. So they like, yeah, it was like the same exact. I wonder, how, I wonder what I can't remember off the top of my head. Yeah. Was, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh God. So Ed Iliano discovered John List call when Pat didn't appear for rehearsal he felt a gut punch of fear and worried he had underreacted when the teen had told him her you father think? had threatened to kill her. Yeah, you think, buddy? Didn't she say exactly this? That they would that he was gonna say they had gone on a vacation? He drove by the list home after rehearsal that very evening, but everything looked normal. The car was gone, so it looked like the family just went on a vacation. Yeah, but that's exactly what she said. I know he didn't do anything. He drove. She's by. also, you know, she's a woman, so it's like people don't listen to women anyway. And a erratic. young woman, you know, a yep. teenager who was on the pure period. <laughs> God, <laughs> maybe. Yeah, this is exactly you're getting to exactly what I was thinking because I wrote in my notes. Maybe it could all still be chalked up to an attention-seeking teenage girl. Unbelievable unbelievable by november 20th though not a single friend or drama kid had heard from pat when does a teenager go 11 days without talking to any of their friends come on i know it doesn't happen if i didn't hear from you for like two hours i'd be concerned (laughs) i'd be calling dan where is she (laughs) then i'd call the police if dan didn't answer i'd be like can you patch me through to quincy so, yeah, so by November 20th, 20th, people are starting to get a little worried. Like, all the drama kids are talking about it. Ed's worried about it. His assistant's worried about it. So he stopped by again, but from the outside, you really couldn't tell that anything – the ballroom was in the inside of the house, so you couldn't see anything through the windows. I think he had done a good enough job cleaning up that it wasn't visible in the windows. I mean, he showered like eight times, so. Yes. The school attendance officer made a few stops in the weeks to come too, but they like just knocked on the door and when no one came, they just left. So it appeared to everyone on the outside that they had just gone on an extended vacation. So Ed was becoming frantic and he alerted the police to his concerns finally, but they felt like he was being ridiculous and they wouldn't investigate. He even turned to the list church because he knew how involved they were in the church. And the pastor told Ed that while he appreciated him looking out for the family, he had already received word from John about the trip to North Carolina. So he was like, no, I already know they're fine. Don't worry about it. But doesn't the letter say that he killed him? Well, he didn't send the letter. He left it in the house. Oh. Yeah, so he sent the letters to the school. Okay. Um, excusing their absences, and he slipped yep. one letter under the insurance office door, but the letters to the family and to the pastor he kept in the house to be sent to them when the police discovered the bodies. Oh, God. So the okay. pastor doesn't know anything. All he knows is the last thing he heard from John was like, "I'm not gonna, I'm gonna miss Sunday school for a couple weeks because I have to go to North Carolina." Okay. In his desperation, Ed Iliano decided to break into Bree's Knoll on a cold, dark night on December 5th, 1971. So he killed his whole family on November 9th. So this is nearly a month after the list disappeared. Uh, yeah, it's not going to be pretty in there. So this is from Ed Iliano's 
account, which he told to Joe Sharkey. With a bright moon low in the sky, he was glad for the cover of long shadows cast by the tall hedges bordering the rear drive. He knew the house well and headed for the ground level windows in the back wing just beside the rear chimney. The screen came off easily because the wood frame was rotted on one side. The window wasn't locked. Grunting, Ed got down on the ground and pushed it open, clambering down backward until his feet found the basement floor inside the house. He dragged in a small flashlight he had left on the ground. Ed's account of that night was discounted by prosecutors 18 years later when John List finally was brought to trial for these crimes. Why? Because he broke in? I think that they don't they weirdly do not trust that he actually did this for a weird reason. I'll keep reading and you'll see. Okay, sorry. But Ed, who died in 2009 at the age of 81, insisted this was what he did and that he would always be ashamed of his cowardice. What was he afraid of? Being charged with a crime, breaking and entering, he confided many years later. Was he also afraid that his relationship with a teenage girl might become a source of public gossip in Westfield? Yes, he admitted. Did you ever touch her inappropriately or suggest anything sexually inappropriate to her? No, he said, his eyes welling with tears, but I loved her. In Ed's tortured account, I know. (laughs) Isn't that terrible? So in Ed's tortured account, he dropped down clumsily and stood motionless in the dark. His heart pounded. Then he heard the music upstairs. It took him a few seconds of cold sweating before he figured out. Jesus, he thought. They left the stereo on. So the John List had left a stereo playing a local classical music station. Oof. So this is very Creeper. So creepy. Imagine it. So creepy. There's dead bodies in the ballroom and there's ghostly classical music playing. Oh, God, could he be any creepier? Ed edged carefully up on the wide, softly lighted staircase that led to a landing at the entrance of the ballroom. Each step seemed to creak more loudly than the last. All of his senses of smell and hearing were alerted before his brain could evaluate the information. The house, which is also totally dark by this, he's like in the pitch black. The house had an off, dank odor, all And the classical music that he had heard faintly downstairs seemed to fill the ground floor. He went into the ballroom entrance and poked the flashlight beam into the gloom. Pat's folk guitar lay in its case on a table just to the left of the entrance. A few stray decorations left from the Halloween party were still taped to a wall on the left. He thought he saw some bundles of clothes dumped on the floor to the right near the fireplace. Then the flashlight fixed on a child's face in the dark clutter on the floor 15 feet away. Ed snapped mm-hmm. the switch off. Nope. Yeah. Ooh, I'm getting chilled. Nope. Nope. As if it would erase the image he had just seen appear in the yellow beam. Sick with fear, he came closer. He kept the flashlight turned off. At his feet, he could make out the body of Helen List grotesquely bloated. The children were beside their mother, whose arms lay across one child's shoulder. Ed shouted Pat into the unyielding gloom, and then he turned and ran, not the way he had come in, but across the hall and into the kitchen and out the back door, which he shut securely behind. He fled to his car. He does not remember driving home the 10 miles to Elizabeth, nor does he remember what he told his wife when she asked him what was wrong. 
Incapacitated by grief and guilt, he kept his discovery to himself. What? Yeah. For two nights and days, he lived in a panic, the cold depths of which he will carry to his grave. Later, the authorities would discount his story as a mistake in memory, owing it to the traumatic events that did ensue, perhaps a result of a personality given to dramatization, as Ed's arguably was. But when pressed, Ed always stood by the seemingly incredible account that he had entered the house before anyone and seen what he had seen and then retreated into terrorized silence. So he goes back to the house later. So two days later, he goes back to the house on the 7th and he convinces Barbara, his assistant, to come with him and the neighbor, the neighbor lady who saw uh, John List out doing the lawn stuff earlier. Yeah. She sees them coming around the drive. And so she calls the police and she's like, hey, there's these people hanging out. They look like they're going to break into the list house. And she goes and confronts them. And they're like, we are getting into this house because we're going to find out what happened to the list. So this is why the police later say that Ed Iliano had like some sort of mental break that he actually discovered the bodies with his assistant and with the neighbor and with the police but it was so traumatic that he somehow created this story that he had been there two days earlier which doesn't make any sense to me I don't think he would admit to breaking and entering you know no so I don't know why they were trying to discount him there unless it was like the defense was trying to discount him but I think it said prosecutor so I don't know but for whatever reason they discounted his version of the events but In any case, this is when definitely the bodies were finally found by everyone. So while they're trying to get in, the police that Shirley, the neighbor, had called showed up at the same time. So we've got Shirley, Barbara, Ed, and two police officers. So Ed leads the officers and the women into the ballroom, and there they find the List family. Of course, it's been a month. The creepy classical music is still playing. The bodies are badly decomposed. He didn't turn off the heat or anything in the house. So they had just been laying there for a month. It was, I mean, it was a horror scene. It's a horror scene. Also, you have to think about how the bodies are posed in the cross shape, you know. So the officers immediately call for backup and police start swarming the house. Meanwhile, these, you know, three lay people are still walking around the house. In the early confusion, no one realized that John wasn't among the victims, and the police and the panicked onlookers at first believed the mass slaying to be the work of a Manson family copycat. Oh, my God. Yep. The Manson trial had only recently concluded, and the atrocious acts were still fresh in everyone's mind. So that was, like, the first thing that they thought of. But the theory was- It was was in California, though. Yeah, but I think that the media made such hay of that that it was just overwhelming, you know? So this theory was quickly dispelled, though, because they realized, A, John wasn't among the victims, so obviously he's the number one suspect. And then the police go in his office and they find the letters and then there's no question, obviously, you know? Ugh. So the bodies were taken to be autopsied. The pastor was notified and allowed to read the confession letter. And he did actually want to take it. The pastor said that it was 
basically it was supposed to be like a confession. Like it should go with the pastor and be a private thing. And the, the police chief is like, oh, hell no. Sorry, sir. This is evidence. It's coming with me. You don't get to have a privileged communication with this murderer, you know? Yeah, what you need to take it into the confessional booth and tell it to say 12 Hail Marys. Yeah, exactly. Like, no. Nope. So then they, you know, collected the evidence and they notified the loved ones and a manhunt for John List began. Obviously, the case was bungled right from the start. Think about all those people traipsing through the scene. Um. Then also the killer had been given an entire month to get a head start on his escape. So the the media made a big deal of this fact, and the public was very rightfully outraged. How could a well-regarded family, active in its church, with three children in school, one of them fully involved in theater, have been missing for a month without generating some sort of inquiry? If everyone's on tranquilizers. (laughs) 1971, everybody gets a tranquilizer. Um, (laughs) If the list had essentially disappeared from the face of the earth on November 10th, where were the authorities in the month that had passed? Didn't school authorities want to know why the children hadn't returned? Wouldn't police in a small town have some inkling that something seemed to miss? And if the family was as intimately involved with its church as it appeared from the descriptions of the murderer's religious bent, why hadn't the minister sent something was wrong? Yeah. It was becoming clear that the perpetrator of this mass murder had had the benefit of a month to get away. Horrifying. Isn't that that's the biggest fucking football drop fumble I've ever heard of. Ugh. Also, you can tell how much sports I watch when I called a fumble a football drop. Football fumble drops. Football fumble drop. (laughs) So both the police chief and the pastor had to do press conferences. They were basically making excuses. They're like, he did all of this meticulous planning and how were we to know? Like they weren't taking any blame for this. Um, Ed Iliano, though, eventually, who was eventually the one person who did push for the discovery, and prodded stridently for the police to investigate. He was the only person that seemed to like take culpability and feel guilt for this for the rest of his life at not being able to save Patricia and her family. Yeah. I mean, I feel like they don't need to take like the minister and the cops. I don't think need to take the blame per se, but I think they need to like, in order to act differently in the future, take accountability for their lack of actions, you know, like, Well, especially because like Ed was coming to the, both the police and the pastor and being like, something's seriously wrong. Can you help me? Yeah. And they were like, yeah. Nah. 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 No, thanks. <laughs> so the last physical evidence was discovered on December 9th, 1971, when police located the list car in long-term parking at JFK. It was a 1963 Chevy Impala with New Jersey tags and an expired inspection sticker, of course, because it's John List. Seeing as John's passport was also missing from the home, and obviously the car was located at an international airport, oh. it was high time that the FBI got involved. So, Wow. Yeah, finally. So, I mean, they had basically just discovered the bodies when the FBI got involved. So pretty soon after, but still, the FBI was working with a full month late. So they had poor Brenda, who was the only surviving member of the family because she had pieced out at 18. They actually asked her to make a public announcement throughout the media saying, 
daddy, please contact me. You're the only family I have left. So they were trying to get her to make a plea to John List to like turn himself in. And they were like hoping it would, you know, play on his heartstrings a little bit. No. But he doesn't have a heart. You can't play on heartstrings if there's no heart. No, I cannot believe they made her do that too. I mean, it made her sick too because he had just killed her mother and her sibling. Yeah. You know? So they they obviously seriously misunderstood John List. Uh, the FBI built a complete profile of John and sent it to agents worldwide. This is what it said. It described the suspect as being 46 years old, 6 feet tall. He was actually an inch taller and weighing 180 pounds with black graying hair, a fair complexion, brown eyes, and two distinguishing scars a mastoidectomy scar behind right ear, and a herniotomy scars both sides abdomen. Flyer included this warning. List, who is charged in New Jersey with multiple murders involving members of his family, may be armed and should be considered very dangerous. Incongruously, it added this remark. Reportedly a neat dresser. <laughs> FBI agents on the case thought the flyer was a dead cinch to locate their man. With his picture, full face, and in three-quarters profile, he was an odd-looking fellow indeed in the pantheon of career murderers, cop killers, and bomb-throwing revolutionaries that crowded the post office walls. After looking into John List's personality and recent history, the FBI was able to focus on two other approaches as well. Investigation turned up the fact that John suffered from severe hemorrhoids and was, one agent on the case said, a heavy-duty consumer of Preparation age. You are lying. No, I'm not. This is what the FBI flyer said. <laughs> so, like, they can send that to pharmacies, and they're like, anytime someone buys more than one bottle of prep age, you gotta, you gotta look. It was also learned that John was so badly nearsighted that his eyeglasses prescription had to be adjusted frequently. Flyers were dispatched to every pharmacy and eye doctor in the country. Wow. <laughs> now we know why he really killed everyone. He was really itchy and uncomfortable. He had to take that all the showers so... and reapply the prep age. Please tell me they said this on America's Most Wanted as well. I, re- I wish they had. I don't think they did. Uh, <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, so one ingenious young operative at the FBI also had the idea – to send these flyers to Lutheran churches because Smart. it's so important to his being and his core sense of who he is that he's like, he's definitely going to go to Lutheran churches. And even more, he thought that local FBI agents should like check out Lutheran churches on Sundays, but it actually never took off. The idea was completely mixed. I guess it was really, really hard to implement, especially with only lukewarm approval from Lutheran officials. I was going to say, I feel like, I feel like they would want to protect all the people who are in their congregation. Exactly. Like a violation of their like trust. Exactly. So they were like, no, we're not participating in that, which sucks because well in hiding, John did end up becoming a prominent member of a couple different Lutheran congregations, so it could have worked, you know? Yeah. Mm. Alas, the case was cold from the get-go, and it would remain that way for the next 18 years. 
the entirety of an infant's passage into adulthood, like we said at the beginning. Is that what you wrote down? I wrote it down, yeah. The entirety of an infant's passage into adulthood. I don't know why I That's said it. much more elegant than what I said. I said like a whole baby's life. <laughs> you said that's exactly what we have to do for these little efforts, the ones that are inside of us now. Or like Kanye West and Gold Digger. 18 years, 18 years. <laughs> it's actually so much longer. <laughs> like you don't, like you think your job is done at 18. It's like, no, no. No, still- it's never done. It's never done. Forever. Forever. (laughs) Forever. (laughs) So long. Uh, The majority of the List family was laid to rest on December 10th, 1971 at the Fairview Cemetery in Westfield, New Jersey, while Alma's body was sent back home to be buried in her home of Frankenmuth, Michigan, per John's request. Bree's knoll remained empty and haunted, picked clean by the bank auctioners and vandals until unknown arsonists burned the decrepit mansion down to the ground nine months after the murders. So that's spooky. Like if it was a ghost story and like the one person who knew it was a ghost story burned the place down. I think you could Just write – You could write a, a satisfying screenplay about this and turn it into a ghost story, huh? Yeah. That's eerie. So it so then it just was like – it was diminished. It was completely demolished. Okay. I mean, it burned to the ground. Dunsville. No more. There's no place that you can go and look at this. Wow. Yep. So nothing remained of the home that was created so lovingly back in 1895 and had given the lists an optimistic fresh start in 1965. It was just a burned out shell and eyesore, the visual reminder of the crime that would haunt Westfield, all of New Jersey, and really all of the nation for the next couple decades. Meanwhile, while the lists were being buried, John List was being reborn as Bob Clark in Colorado. John had shed his skin that fateful day and emerged off the plane in Denver, a new man. He had so managed- he just parked at the international lot to lead mm-hmm. them astray. Exactly. Fuck. Yeah. He had managed to secure a new social security number linked to his new identity, a trailer on the outskirts of the city purchased with <clears throat> cash for $1,500, and a night shift job as a line cook at a Holiday Inn. Bob was quiet, religious, hardworking, and kept to himself. He proved surprisingly adept at cooking and creating special dishes and moved up through the ranks to sous chef. He spent the next decade cultivating distant friendships, establishing his Bob Clark identity, working at a string of -of back-of-the-house kitchen jobs until he was able to safely break back into accounting work. During the entire time, too, he attended Lutheran churches. He lived simply and under the radar, entirely unremarkably, if it hadn't been for the remarkable circumstances of the murders and his evasion of the FBI for so many years. Not a single soul who met and befriended Bob Clark in those years had any inkling that he was a mass murderer who had slaughtered his entire family. Years later, when John's luck finally ran out, all of these people would be shook. None more so than Dolores Miller, a tall, pleasant-looking woman in her mid-30s who had just been recently divorced from a military man when she met Bob Clark in 1977. 
She was a shy, religious woman who worked as military personnel at the Fitzsimmons Army Medical Center in Aurora, Colorado. The two had met at a single social sponsored by an area Lutheran church. So the relationship took several months to build, but Dolores was eventually taken by Bob's gentle nature, good character, and commitment to the Lutheran faith. On John Bob's part, Dolores seemed to be the opposite of Helen in every way. She was non-demanding. She didn't drink. Her passions were church and community service. Yeah, so it was kind of the ideal woman for him. He was completely besotted with her. So this is what her friends had to say. While she wasn't prepared to consider marriage again, not by a long shot, and not to a 46-year-old widower, she was only in her mid-30s, Bob had shaved six years off of John Liss' age. Talk about ego. He made himself six years younger. (laughs) Unreal. That vain fuck who didn't seem to have a particularly promising career, as usual. Yeah. Dolores kept seeing Bob, who was very persistent and friendly. And in time, Dolores' friends simply regarded them as one of those couples whose names would usually be uttered together, Dolores and Bob. He was always sweet to her. It was like he was almost too sweet, one of those friends said. He would practically trip over himself trying to open the door for her. She seemed to like being with him, but it was obvious he was in a bigger hurry to have a serious relationship than she was. After her divorce, she wanted a little breathing space. Because she sensed the aura of tragedy around it, Dolores didn't ask a lot of questions about Bob's background, and she didn't press the few she did ask once she had his brief explanation. What he told me was his wife had died of cancer, and she was a very sickly lady, Dolores said in 1989. She was never shown, nor did she ask to see photos of Bob's first wife. So Dolores encouraged Bob to fully go after accounting, and he was back in that world by late 1977, doing the books for a carpet company, and then he launched his own accounting consulting business. It couldn't really be considered a success because he only had a few mediocre clients, but in 1985, he was successful in one thing, and that was convincing Dolores to marry him. 1985? Yeah. So they, they, so were, they waited a long time. A long time. They met in 77, and wow. they got married in 85. So Dolores and Bob celebrated their engagement by purchasing a modest condo out by the Denver airport, and it was there that they moved in next to one Wanda Flannery, whose eagle eyes would eventually help to turn in the duplicitous Bob Clark. Wanda took a shine to Dolores, who moved in before Bob to avoid cohabitation before marriage. Oh my God. It's, eight, it's 85. And they've been together for eight years, I think, at this point. So had they not slept that in- together that entire More time? Than seven years? I don't know. <laughs> I'm assuming they had to have, right? I don't know. This is crazy. About marriage altogether, Dolores had her concerns about getting hitched, Wanda later reported. She said, well, honey, you know him and I don't. It's up to you. You have to decide for yourself one night when Dolores sought her advice. Well, I just don't know, Dolores said. What I'd really like to do is run. Just get away from it all. So it seems like to me and to Wanda that Dolores, Dolores' gut instinct was to get the hell out and run and she should have 
Oof. In the end, she went through with it, and Bob and Dolores were married in a Lutheran church in Dolores's hometown of Risertown, Maryland, on November 23rd, 1985, which is exactly 35 years ago today as we're recording this. Whoa. Yeah, really? November 23rd. Mm-hmm. Whoa. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, 1985. 2020 minus 1985 is 35, right? It's 35. Yeah, that's how old I am. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Uh, So soon after the wedding, Bob's consulting business dried up and his accounting job at the packaging store eventually also let him go. History was repeating itself with Dolores, none the wiser of John Liss's long history of professional failure. And murder. And murder. (laughs) And religion. Yeah, that, well, that she knows about. (laughs) As it turned to 1987, Bob's prospects were bad, and Dolores grew resentful at being the breadwinner in the marriage because she actually hated her job, and Bob kept saying, like, oh, once my business takes off, you can quit your job, but that was never going to happen, obviously. Yeah, and he, like, knew it, too. He had to know it. He's He's, like, a million times loser. It was on a winter day during this time that Wanda, who had a penchant for tabloids, picked up a February issue of one called the Weekly World News. Wanda's a hero. I love Wanda so much. She had come upon an article well inside the paper that indicated to her with compelling persuasiveness that Bob Clark bore a startling resemblance in physical appearance, in demeanor, and habits to a notorious mass murderer who, the paper said, had been on the loose since killing his wife, children, and mother in 1971. Also, have you ever seen the movie So I Married an Axe Murderer? I don't think so. Oh, my gosh. It's hilarious. It's a 90s movie with um, Austin Powers, Mike Myers. And... It's set in San Francisco, so I love it. Because Nathaniel and I watched it for the first time when we still lived in San Francisco. Yeah. And it's so funny. And in it, he get, he meets and, like, marries the most beautiful, perfect woman. And she's a butcher. And okay. she has described, like, her three failed marriages to him. And he ends up at his mom's house. And she has, I think, the Weekly World News, the same tabloid. Okay. And he's like, and it was like the like mysterious heartbreak killer or something and perfectly describes like the three husbands <laughs> she had and they're all murdered. And so he believes he married an axe murderer. It's it's really funny, guys. I'm telling you, watch it. But no, I would, I want to watch it. It's on list now. It's good. It's a it's a love murder recommendation. It's really silly. I suggest like getting high and watching it if if you can still partake in those things because you're not with child. <laughs> so not us, basically. Not us. No. <laughs> But yeah, it's it's a really, really silly movie. But that's basically what happens to him in the movie. So she's reading this tabloid and she's listening to this description of this guy that sounds exactly like her neighbor. And then there's also a photo of him in the paper. The perfect crime, the headline read over a story that described the most confounding murder case police in New Jersey had worked on since the Lindbergh kidnapping. Wanda proceeded to read the terrible account of John List and that gruesome day in New Jersey in November 1971. John List, who had murdered his family, those women, and those children had then disappeared into thin air. In point of fact, Wanda probably would have scanned this particular story just briefly and shrugging off a coincidence, flipped through the pages to something less depressing. 
But as she glanced up idly from the photograph of the wanted man that accompanied the story, she gazed out her back window and encountered an image on the patio that made her blink several times. It was only old Bob fussing with the lid on his trash can out there. But to Wanda, it appeared as if John List himself were standing there. Her eyes darted she from- She knew. She knew. Oh, can you imagine the chill that runs up your spine? No. And is she single? Is she like living there by herself? Yeah. So I, I her, her daughter and her son-in-law are around a lot, but I don't think they live with them. I think they just so visit scary. a lot. So scary. Her eyes darted from Bob to the newspaper and back. She read the story all the way through. Oh my God. She said in amazement. Oh my God. So funny. So crazy. (laughs) She sighed and read through the story one more time, looking for signs to tell her she was being silly. She looked and frowned, but they weren't there. Wanda started to make a mental checklist with each clue that uncanny physical resemblance aside seemed to point right next door. The murderer was just over six feet tall with horn-rimmed glasses, a receding hairline, and brown eyes. Bob would be about 61 years old. That's what she figured Bob was. She's also, it's really funny. She's like the same age as Bob. And he says he's like six years younger. So she's like, how old are you, Bob? Like she knows that he's her age and he's lying about it. Bob, with that long, nasty scar behind his right ear. Bob, deeply religious, Lutheran church. Bob, Sunday school teacher. Bob, Neat dresser. Bob from Michigan. Bob told her that. Mirthless. Bob worked as an accountant. Bob went from job to job, spent beyond his means, seemed to have chronic money problems. Bob, Bob, Bob. Bob. Bob, Bob, Bob. Bob on the run. You better run. run. (laughs) Um, Oh my God. So she's freaking out, of course. That evening after Dolores I would arrived, be shitting my pants. <laughs> yeah, it's so scary. <laughs> so it gets worse though. So she gets the courage to to bring the paper over to Dolores. So she waits for Bob to leave. She brings the paper over to Dolores and she's like, "Hey, I found this article in this paper and it's just so weird. Don't you think this guy kind of looks like Bob? What a weird coincidence. He's also this and he's that. Like I just you know, she tried to, like, make it funny. Like, it's just a wild coincidence, right? Like, what do you think? And Dolores just completely laughed it off. She agreed that there was a slight resemblance. But, of course, you know, 16 years or more had passed since the photo in the paper was taken. So, you know, there was a little bit of a deniability. Of course. She also, like, And I think she already married him, unfortunately. Already married so him. it's like, so they're locked in. Denial because she just yeah. could not imagine that she would have married a man who could do this. She told Wanda that there was no way, you know, her mild mannered husband would ever hurt a fly. So then this would scare me. Dolores asked if she could keep the paper to show Bob. So this yeah, would I'd be like, me. I don't think that's a good idea, <laughs> Dolores. <laughs> Wanda, I'd be so scared for my life because Dolores is gonna take it and be like, "Look what Wanda from next door gave me." It's like, and then he's like, "I gotta take Wanda out, right?" Like Wanda must have been shitting her pants. Truly, like this multi-murderer now knows that I know it's him. I know that's why it's so risky for Wanda to Wanda to have done that in the first place. Yes. 
So she's like a little freaking out. So the next day she purposely avoids both of them because she's like so freaked out about this. And then the next night Bob is watching 60 Minutes and she can hear the television like in the next apartment. And so um, Dolores is like, I guess, in the front part of the apartment. And so she like covertly goes into the apartment and she wants to like find out if Dolores like showed Bob and what Bob said, you know, because she's terrified. So that night, Wanda made up an excuse to go over for matches and took Dolores aside while Bob was watching 60 Minutes in the living room. Did you show it to him? She asked, making a deliberate attempt to sound amused. What, that newspaper article? Yes, did he see it? Both women noticed they were whispering. Oh, that, Dolores said, sounding unconcerned. I threw it out to tell you the truth. That man wasn't anything like Bob. It wasn't even worth showing him. I'm sorry, you didn't want it back, did you? Of course not, Wanda assured her, and she meant it. Without the evidence nagging at her in black and white, she had decided to dismiss the whole thing as a weird coincidence, just the sort of thing you can expect to get paying attention to anything written in some ridiculous newspaper that prints stories about space aliens in the Pentagon and men having seven-pound babies. In fact, Wanda would have been quite content never to have given the matter another moment's thought. But as things would turn out, this would not be the case. So by Christmas of 1987, Bob finally received some good news. An employment agency in Richmond, Virginia had found Bob a job. He was eager to get back to a place where he had once been stationed in his youth. And Dolores was also delighted that he had found steady employment in a place that wasn't too far from her family in Maryland. So they were both really excited about this. Also, I think that they were losing their apartment. They couldn't make the mortgage payments and like they were going to be foreclosed upon anyway. So like they need to get out while the getting was good rough yeah so bob moved first to get settled and find a house in january of 1988 and dolores joined him in may of the same year the two put the house in dolores's name for two reasons one she had fronted almost the entirety of the money for the down payment of course and two bob clark could remain under the radar they also found a nice neighborhood lutheran church to attend and the couple settled settled in quite nicely in Brandermill, a quiet suburb about 30 minutes outside of Richmond. The tranquility of John List's stolen double life was about to explode when an intrepid police detective from New Jersey convinced the producer of America's Most Wanted to feature the List murders. Captain Frank Maranca was the recently promoted head of homicide in Union County, New Jersey in 1988. It might be Maranca. I'm going to say Maranca. 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 Frank Maranca. He had been tirelessly chasing down cold leads to find John List and close the books on one of New Jersey's most infamous murders for good when America's Most Wanted began airing. So I'm going to explain a little bit about America's Most Wanted for those of you guys who are way too young to remember what it was. But it was, I mean, we are too young to really remember it. Oh, I remember it. Do you? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I remember what it was, but I don't really, I never watched it. Did you watch it? I feel like, I feel like I definitely watched it. I like, (laughs) but I also, I feel like my parents unintentionally, of course, but they like 
let me watch a lot of scary stuff. And we were also growing up in a suburb of Chicago and like there was just like horrible things on the news all the time. So I think they like thought I was desensitized, but I, I feel like I remember the, uh, the intro and everything. I do too. I think it was just a big cultural moment in the, at the yeah. time too. So when they first heard about it from friends, law enforcement authorities tended to scoff at America's Most Wanted, which was a television program that Fox Broadcasting, a subsidiary of the holding company of Australian-born tabloid press baron Rupert Murdoch, began yeah. broadcasting in 1988. Each program featured dramatizations of serious crimes whose perpetrators were still at large. These dramatic vignettes were followed by pertinent information about the fugitives, the most critical of which were actual photographs of the criminal who had just been portrayed by an actor. The program was a huge rating success. It was also generating lively response from viewers who were invited to phone in with tips on suspects. In the first six months, each weekly broadcast of America's Most Wanted was eliciting an average of 6,000 telephone calls per episode. Most wow. of the calls were from the ranks of the perpetually alarmed people who, for example, thought that their five foot seven mail carrier was in fact the six foot five axe murderer had been featured to them. But many were not. Given the odds, an amazing number of the calls were coming in. An amazing number of the calls coming in were solid tips that were leading directly to arrests. In fact, the program was logging an average of almost one arrest for each broadcast. So cool. So cool. When I first saw America's Most Wanted, that's the only thing I could think of. Getting John List on the air, said Marenka, a trim, dark-haired man in his early 40s. It was obvious by 1988, he said, that there was no way we were going to find him on our own. Marenka wasn't the only one who thought about John List in America's Most Wanted. After the program started getting a reputation, other investigators in the office began dropping by. Listen, can I look at the John List file, one said? I want to notify America's Most Wanted. Hey, it's already been done, Marinka told him. The letter went out. The letter went out in the spring of 1988, but the reply came back, nope, no thanks. The case was too old and the show was too new to take the chances <gasps> on a hopeless cause. The show's producers didn't offer- I feel offer... like that goes against everything that the show's about. Uh, uh, I guess when it started, they were just trying to take sure things, you know? The show's producers didn't offer a lot of encouragement about the future. Maybe later, they indicated, after the show was more <laughs> firmly established and could take a chance. Of course, the case wouldn't look any less hopeless then, and it would also be older. Nine months later, Marenka heard a sergeant in the homicide squad saying he was taking a few days off to attend a regional law enforcement conference in Wilmington, Delaware, at which Michael Linder, the executive producer of America's Most Wanted, was going to speak. So Marenko was like, I'm going to go. I'm going to find him. And I'm going to get him to get this case on the show. So awesome. So awesome. Also, leave it to uh, the head of homicide to not take no for an answer, of course. Yes. He essentially stalked the producer, managed to convince Michael to allow him to go up to his hotel suite and pitch him on the case, including he brought like all of the case documents. And after about 30 minutes, Marenka had him sold. It was the details that sold him, the ballroom, the confession letter, the fact that List had been a Sunday school teacher. The case might not get yeah. solved, but it was damn good television. 
So after the episode aired in 1989, and our gal Wanda reported the Clarks to the authorities using the return address on a piece of mail Dolores had sent her, the tip ended up on the desk of Kevin August. Agent August was 31 years old, a three-year veteran of the FBI, and one of the very few black special agents in the Richmond area at the time. Though he was skeptical of entertainment-based leads, he made the trip out to Brandermill to assess the situation on June 1st, 1989. At a little before 10 in the morning, he knocked on the Clark's door and was greeted by a surprise Dolores. Agent August showed Dolores a photo of List and asked her to compare it to a recent photo of Bob Clark. The resemblance was striking. As he ran down a list of questions that Dolores answered in the affirmative, August felt a rush and Dolores slowly devolved into tears as the horrific truth dawned on her. Uh, Of course. Also, she had to know, like her gut had to know after Wanda said that to her. Well, it seems like her gut knew that there was something wrong with him before and she like still married him. So it's just probably, it's just a lot. Mass, mass so star check from Michigan check works as an accountant check like all the things that Wanda had noticed as well I wonder I wonder if he asked her about the hemorrhoids oh I wonder I if wonder he was like can I look at your medicine cabinet you guys have an abundance of preparation age how's your husband's asshole <laughs> oh my god So Dolores obviously lost it, and August's partner stayed with her as much to provide moral support to her as to prevent her from tipping off Bob John, who was at work. Bob John. Bob John. (laughs) Good old Bob John. Yep. So August went to the office where Bob John worked now. When August flashed his FBI badge at Madrea Joiner, the accounting firm where job where Bob was employed. Job. Bob John. Bob John. Um, the secretary was stunned. What could the FBI want with meek, mild-mannered Bob? Bob John. Old Bob John. She was even more stunned when August told her that he was there to arrest Bob for multiple homicide. This is also crazy. Can you imagine being that secretary, though? There's some, like, old duffer who's in his, like, 60s who works in your office that you never pay attention to. And then one day the FBI shows up and they're like, that guy that you've been working with, the guy with the sweater vest back there, he's a he's a mass murderer. Like, what? What? The guy with the, guy with the sweater vest and the donut that he sits on? with the frequent bathroom breaks he's a killer (laughs) so she pointed out his desk but it just so happened that bob was walking down the hall toward them at that very moment unlike the secretary bob was completely unsurprised to find himself in the company of the fbi he must have just been like i've been waiting for this day for 18 years fucking piece of shit so bob did admit that there was a lot of coincidences that linked him to john list but he refused to admit that he was john list however after his fingerprints were matched at the local police precinct the matter was settled 
Like really, you forgot to you forgot to burn those off, huh, buddy? Burn your fingertips off, you asshole. No commitment these days. No commitment. <laughs> After 18 years, the FBI had made an arrest in the murders of Helen, Alma, Patricia, John, and Young Frederick. Justice would be served at long last. List finally confessed his identity and crimes in February of 1990 when faced with the irrefutable evidence. Oh, my God. So crazy. On April 12, 1990, after hearing seven days of testimony, a Union County jury found John List guilty of five counts of murder in the first degree. Since there was no capital punishment statute in effect in New Jersey in 1971, John was spared the death sentence he had summarily decreed for his wife, three children, and his own mother. On May 1st, Superior Court Judge William Wertheimer imposed the maximum sentence five consecutive life terms, thus ensuring that John would never be eligible for parole, a.k.a. LWOPT. Good. The name of John List will be eternally synonymous with concepts of selfishness, horror, and evil, the judge said with contempt as John stood at attention before him. John List is without remorse and without honor. After 18 years, 5 months, and 22 days, it is now time for the voices of Helen, Alma, Patricia, Frederick, and John F. List to rise from the grave. During the trial, a psychiatrist who interviewed John extensively answered questions on the stand. The jury and spectators were horrified about how matter-of-fact and cold John had been recounting the crimes to the doctor. In describing the murders, John, according to the psychiatrist, did not feel the enormity of guilt and remorse and sadness at the loss of his family that he should. I think he's rather a cold-blooded individual, the doctor said. No shit. While the doctor testified, John only raised one eyebrow impassively. He reportedly told the doctor that he very rarely thought of the murders or his family at all, except occasionally on the anniversary of their deaths. And since he had prayed wow. for forgiveness, he had put the matter behind him. Unbelievable. I mean, so I, crazy. I think most of the people we know, like most of our generation, can't go to sleep at night without remembering something stupid they did in fifth grade. And he can sleep at night having slaughtered his entire family. I mean, he's just obviously like sociopathic. It's, un- it's unbelievable. Yeah. Oh. When asked why he didn't just kill himself, either instead of killing his family or even after he killed them, he said that it was because he knew he'd go to hell as suicide is an unforgivable sin. He claimed by living and escaping, he would one day die forgiven of his sins and get to enjoy heaven with his family. So you don't go to hell if you kill people? Not if you have time to confess it and beg Jesus's forgiveness, apparently. Yeah, I'm not, I'm just not sure about church. Anyway, that was, that was his belief system. So the doctor concluded his testimony. He wanted grace in the hereafter, but he didn't want arrest yet. There's religious belief and there's religious hypocrisy. And I think there's a fair amount of hypocrisy here. Yeah, I would agree, doctor. So John List appealed his conviction and sentence on the basis of PTSD from his military service, as we mentioned, as well as claiming that the confession letter he left for his pastor was a privileged communication, so it shouldn't have been admissible in his case. His his pastor's not a psychiatrist. Yeah. It's 
this is Come on. this is a totally different situation. The federal courts called bullshit on both, and John spent the rest of his life behind bars. He died on March twenty first, two thousand eight, of pneumonia, completely and utterly alone. No one came forward to collect his miserable bag of bones. Good. Our heroine, Wanda Flannery, died at the age of 65 in 1997, a minor celebrity until the end. She preceded her beloved tabloid magazine by one year as the weekly world news went out of print exactly a year after she died. Wow. They couldn't survive without their best customer. Nope. (laughs) Their most loyal customer. Exactly. So Dolores divorced Bob in 1989 right after his arrest. Girl. Girl, get out. Good for you. And like, do you even have to, or does like the <laughs> marriage get annulled? It should get annulled. You should get a, yeah. a get out of jail free pass for that one. Yeah. That is like the world's worst episode of Who the Bleep Did I Marry? Yeah, it's so bad. Ugh. Poor girl. So I couldn't find any additional information about Dolores, but I hope she had some happiness and a fulfilling life. And, you know, she's probably. She wouldn't be that old, so I hope she's still alive and found some semblance of joy. I hope so, too. I hope she found someone really nice. Me, too. What an insane thing to happen to a person. And she, like, obviously the whole time was just trying to, like, look at, like, find the bright side. Like, that's so weird. They look similar. It's Uh like, oh. And she, like, kind of did everything right. She met a guy at church. She waited, like, seven years before she got married to him. Like, she must have felt like she knew him really well at that point or she thought she did, you know? It just goes to show, guys, you can do everything right. If you don't listen to your gut, you're screwed. Yeah. Great. Okay. So we had a very exciting show. I think this is one of the craziest cases that we have absolutely ever covered. And if you – liked this story and want to hear more of stories like this or you just want to say congrats on being knocked up guys please leave us five stars in a review (laughs) and um many many thanks this week to janine scott run mama run and ticket to hell for your awesome reviews you you definitely um made us smile on what was an otherwise really sucky week because andy had to cancel up to see us um, yeah, it, it they definitely brought a smile to our face while we were <laughs> commiserating, <laughs> having a meltdown. Yeah. So thanks so much. And we hope you guys have an awesome Thanksgiving and everyone stays safe and enjoy your pumpkin pie for one. All of you will be right there with you. In conclusion, don't ever settle in relationships. I think both Helen and Dolores were on the rebound when they met John List and he trapped them. So when you're on the rebound, date lots and lots of people, have a lot of fun and do not, do not settle for just the first accountant guy that comes along. I think we could all learn to listen to our nosy tabloid reading neighbor every once in a while. You never know. Yeah, absolutely. And it turns out there might be some truth in those wild tabloid magazines. Now listen to those tales. <laughs> and as always, remember, we're all just one bad relationship away from getting murdered. Thanks for listening, guys. Thank you. Bye. Happy Thanksgiving.